Hello, everyone, and welcome to Manga Mavericks. We're a podcast dedicated to manga as both a medium and as an industry. I'm your host, Lam Ramayasha, and today we've got a special podcast for you all. A topic all about LGBTQ manga and our relationship to these series as queer readers searching for representation of ourselves in queer media. Joining me for the discussion are some really great guests. Trevor and Alex from Queering the Guillotine, a podcast dedicated to exploring manga and other media through a queer and leftist lens, and Carlene from the blog Coherent Cats, who's done extensive coverage and writing on queer mangas through her Rainbow Releases posts and her profile of our dreams of dust, mangaka Yuki Kamatani on Anime Feminist. I've been a big fan of all these wonderful folks' work for a while, and it was a real pleasure to discuss the wonderful world of queer manga with them examining how queer media has helped us understand and shape our own queer identities and what we look to in queer media for entertainment and representation. We discuss works that helped us discover ourselves, best represent the queer community, and are promising signs of progress in the ways queer characters and stories are being told. We also discuss tropes we're not fond of, the give and take of finding value in imperfect or problematic works and understood areas of representation we want to see more of. We originally recorded this podcast back in June, so while we're releasing this a little late, and you'll definitely hear maybe some out-of-date topics of conversation in the podcast, queer manga should be read and celebrated all year round, and it's always a good time to talk about them. And honestly, there's no queerer season or holiday than spooky Halloween season anyway. Ask any of your queer friends and they'll tell you there's nothing gayer and queerer than witches, vampire, and wolves, which is why they're often the subject of queer media, and honestly, queer horror manga is a whole other discussion topic I'd love to dig into at a later date. But until then, we had a gay old time recording this podcast, and we hope you'll join us over the rainbow. We've taken pride in covering many great LGBTQ manga on our show over the years. And for the longest time, I've wanted to do a broader topic discussion centered around queer manga. The scope and shape of this project eluded me for some time because I was I was worried I hadn't written enough of classics for my queer works to hold like a super all-encompassing discussion on the history of queer manga. But ultimately I decided to take our explorations through the world of queer manga in steps, and start from a more personal place. What queer manga means to us as queer readers, and our evolving histories with them. Joining me for this discussion are some wonderful guests who specialized in exploring media's true queer lens, examining representation in media, and spotlighting queer media in their work. Trevor and Alex from the Queering the Guilty Podcast, and Carly from the Block Coherent Cats. Thank you guys for coming on! Hello, it's good to be here. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank you for yeah, having me. Thank us. you. Thank you for joining me. I've been a longtime fan of your guys' work, 
and I'm really glad to have you on to help share your perspective and expertise on the world of LGBTQ manga. I mean, before we dig into our discussion proper, would you guys like to speak more about your relationship with queer media and how you explore it in your work? Uh, particularly, like, how it inspires on the project you guys have done, like Carlene, your rainbow releases, posts, and panels, and for you, Trevor and Alex, the Green the Guilting podcast. Oh, yeah. Uh, Carlene, did you want to start off? <laughs> okay. Okay. I guess I, guess I was said first. <laughs> That's <I'm> okay. Sorry. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. My name is Carlene. Um, when anime conventions were still a thing, <laughs> um, I, I hosted um, panels with my partner, um, one of which was called Rainbow Releases, and um, we would cover um, anime and manga releases throughout the year um, that we felt were relevant to LGBT identity and topics and issues, or would just otherwise interest LGBT people. And um, we would also post um, kind of transcripts of the panel on our blog, um, Coherent Cats. And yeah, uh, without conventions happening, there hasn't been um, as much need to collect them, but um, I still read a lot of LGBT manga, of course, so I'm happy to talk about it. Yeah, excellent. I mean, I really enjoy reading your posts and your uh, exploration and spot planning of different titles, and your kind of initial transcript of one of your first panels, like, I believe it was from 2017, like, Beyond Yuri and I, LGBTQ representation in manga, like, that is just such a great... Right. Uh, primer and history of the history of like LGBTQ anime among the works and how they've evolved over time so and that's definitely something we'll be linking in the show notes but it is really really well done okay thank you yeah it is a little outdated by this point but if you yeah if if you want a primer on like the kind of timeline of LGBT manga um and how it led to Yuri on Ice, you could say. It's it's still there for people to read. And Trevor and Alex, uh, what about you and your relationship with your media and then uh, getting smart to start creating guilty? Um, so this is Trevor. Uh, I guess I'll start. So I, uh, in addition to hosting and editing the podcast, um, kind of like, on my downtime from my day job, I am a media critic and I primarily focus on video games, but I have written about anime and manga and am constantly wishing that I did that more because <laughs> I love it. <laughs> um, and yeah, it's kind of like, you know, growing up queer my whole life, I, it's impossible for me to not look at things through a queer lens and want to like, you know, find that, like, kind of queer studies angle, or talk about how things are being represented, or even, like, read queerness into something. So that informs, like, most of my writing. <laughs> and, um, yeah, and I think that, you know, Alex and I, us just kind of reading stuff together, playing stuff together, talking about it, eventually we're just like maybe we should start a podcast where we just do that but <laughs> record it <laughs> alex do you want to talk about maybe the podcast and your stuff uh yeah uh alex here also a media critic in my downtime 
which I have very little of when I'm just get home from work and I'm too tired Same. to do more work. <laughs> but um, I mostly write about comics, especially manga and gay things. And yeah, with the podcast, it's like broadly pop culture. So we don't like just do specifically gay things, but we try to do a lot of them. And they're often some of our favorite things to do. You know, like we've done episodes like spotlighting, like various uh, BL, like we did about like Yuki and Matsu. Um, we do like anime too, like Sarah's on my. And even when we're talking about things that aren't, like, explicitly gay, we're still talking about how gay Naruto actually is, yeah. which is always fun. <laughs> how Zoro is most definitely queer. Oh, oh yeah. Zoro is the bottom of One Piece. Like, the bottom. <laughs> yeah, we stand Zoro. <laughs> yeah. Like, I, again, I've really enjoyed listening to your guys' podcast, and I believe, like, your tagline is two queer members of the proletariat, like, discussing media, or, like, fighting against, uh, suffering under heteronormativity. Yeah. And, yeah. I mean, I, I really appreciate that you're looking at media, like, from both a queer and a leftist lens, so I, I really appreciate that. I really enjoy your discussions. Thank you so much. It Thank means you. a lot. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah, I mean, I'm really, again, glad to have you guys on here today because of your expertise and, you know, the fact that queer media, queer representation is always on your guys' mind and for it extends please through the work you do. And, I mean, I guess that's where I want to start. Like, in, of course, the Mindmarks podcast history, we've spotlighted a lot of different queer monger titles. And, you know, as we've continued to do that, and as I've continued to, you know, be impressed by, like, kind of leaps and strides of different types of queer manga, uh, especially from queer readers spreading on experiences, you know, it really made me want to just reflect on my own evolving relationship with uh, queer manga and media. And that's kind of the first question I want to put out to you guys is, like, when did you first become aware of LGBT manga, like when you were younger, or when you first like realized that there were queer works out there, and when did you start to seek them out? Um, for me personally, a lot of the like when I first got into manga as like a preteen, they were all really heteronormative mm -hmm. stuff I read, like whether they were considered good, like Emma, or whether now they're considered trash, like Love Hina. They're all kind of equally heteronormative, but, um, and I still like them, but it really wasn't until, well, I feel like the closest thing I had to a manga about like LGBT issues and identity as a kid was Cardcaptor Sakura, where it isn't like brought up explicitly, but Clamp has said they made it with like the idea of showing all kinds of love to like their young readers um including same gender love mm -hmm. unfortunately that idea goes into some in my opinion yikes places yeah, uh, teachers <laughs> creeping but, on elementary uh, school girls not, not great clam yeah. <laughs> but but uh it still stuck with me i i i still love it but um but i really didn't get into like more 
LGBT relevant manga until I was in my early 20s, honestly, which was when I basically went through like the whole clamp backlog and I read just a bunch of like beloved manga that I had never read before, like Sailor Moon or Antique Bakery or like the first time I tried to read Banana Fish. (laughs) It's too long. (laughs) It's too long. But I've read it now and I love it, but you know, (laughs) but, and I didn't read BL and Yuri for a long time either for whatever reason, like until basically friends recommended titles to me, like whispered words or Mr. Minimart. But, and I guess the reason I sought them out was because I saw people recommending them online, but a lot of them weren't available officially in English. Stuff like love my life. Which also has a movie. I don't know if that's available officially. Not yet. Yeah. Like maybe someday. But but I think the only thing that I would see around a lot that was available in English was Wandering Sun. And I was only able to read a few volumes of that either. But it was kind of when I came more into my own LGBT identity that I like sought out those manga and learned about them. So and did queer media have uh did it help in shaping or helping you understand your own queer identity? I mean, for me this is something that I'll go into later, but I am curious for you guys. Like, did seeking mm-hmm. out queer manga, reading queer manga, did that help you anyway understand better your own identity? I think so. I I feel like I've always been pretty set in my identity. But I think in terms of romance, I learned a lot. But since about up till the time I was a teenager, I I didn't care for like romance at all, no matter like the circumstances, because I thought all romance was like a man and a woman. Mm. But but then when I learned there could be other gender combinations, I suddenly like liked romance and like romance fiction. And I feel like you could that you could say that opened me up to the idea of being with another person. But wonderful. Yeah. And I extend that question to you guys for right now, Alex. Like when did you first discover queer LGBTQ manga series, anime series? And what is your relationship to them? Yeah, for me, um you know, I I had been away from manga for a long time because I was reading a few series in middle school, typically like reading the mangas for whatever series would appear on Toonami or Adult Swim. So Naruto, um, you know, Dragon Ball, Full Metal, Alchemist, etc. And then for a good while, I was just away from anime and manga, just pursuing other hobbies and so it wasn't until like like three or so years ago like a few years ago that i really got back into it and got back into it hard and so it's one of those things where i remember growing up it's like i didn't even feel like there was queer manga as its own kind of like distinction i just remember well, because there were there really wasn't a ton of queer media for me growing up. Period. At least none that I was able to access. And even though it was obviously out there, you know, just 
but just as like a child, it wasn't really out there for me. And so it's kind of like when I returned to manga a few years ago, it's like, oh, you know, there's a market for this now. There are titles that I can grab, like Go For It Nakamura, like uh, My Brother's Husband, uh, my, my Lesbian Experience of Loneliness. Like, um, there's like a whole market now. So that's been really refreshing. Um, though, even even though there wasn't like, you know, a distinguished market when I was growing up, there were obviously queer characters in everything. Like, there's always mm-hmm. going to be uh, queerness when, when you know how to find it or um, <laughs> or even just like, well, even just things like, um, you know, like Haku in Naruto is like a really important oh, character yeah. for me. Like, yeah, so yeah. stuff like that, you know, so I, I, I was able to find some sort of uh, little crumbs of queerness hidden here or there, like. Very much looking at the Wikipedia page, like, queer characters in video games, like, that kind of thing. <laughs> and there only being, like, a hundred listings or something. But, like, so, yeah, it's mostly been kind of, like, enjoying the, I'll go ahead and say buffet. I'll be optimistic and I'll say the buffet <laughs> of options that are avail- available to me now. <laughs> yeah, you picked a good time to get back into manga. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There is just a wealth of options available now. More and more of the Hue series are getting licensed, whether they be BL, Yuri, or uh, genuine stories from those Hue creators that are just, you know, exploring kind of very real topics and themes. And in addition to that, I mean, in terms of accessibility, we have platforms like Lilica, uh, mm-hmm. with, like Futakia, like platforms that specialize in uh, promoting and distributing like queer comics and it's just really amazing and it's just really awesome it's a great time to be a queer fan of queer manga yeah yeah like for me like becoming aware of like gay anime and manga and actually getting into it there was like a large gap because like the first i became aware of would have been in, like, early middle school or so, just, like, being online and discovering, like, doujinshi and shipping art of various (laughs) characters and just, like, seeing, you know, just, like, male characters together and be like, ooh, I like this, huh, (laughs) you know? And so relatively early on, encountering like largely through fan works and through that like becoming aware of boys love except at the time i didn't know the term boys love because the only word i knew was yaoi for stuff like that Mm -hmm. and i didn't like really connect with it when i was younger you know because just like the few examples that i really saw of what little did come over i didn't connect with identity wise like things like loveless and series like that I did not look at and see my young gay self in those characters <laughs> at all. Um, I've been reading comics my entire life, but like I started out with mostly like American superhero comics. And so it wasn't until probably about like four years ago or so where I switched more from reading like American comics to Japanese comics. And only in like those last few years have I really been able to get into 
gay manga and really dive in and find a lot of stuff that I like, which, like you all were saying, it just feels like there's a lot more to be found now, actually translated, versus when I was in sixth grade, there were just, like, a handful (laughs) of BL that did not match anything remotely like what I would call my own gay experience. And I am interested, because you used to be more a Western comics reader, do you find more of a wealth of satisfying queer stories representation in manga than you do, or did you find in Western comics? Oh, way more in manga. It's like, Mm. it's such a gulf that, like, it just makes Marvel and DC look so bad. <laughs> like, because with, like, Marvel and DC, it's like, I can't even say it's gotten, like, quantifiably totally better over time. Because, like, as the companies and, like, corporate structure have shifted and it's all, like, literally owned by Disney now, it'll be like, they mm-hmm. trot out, like a series starring a gay character and it'll last a year and then they'll cancel it. And then the next, su- the next summer will come around and they'll be like, all right, homosexuals, here's your rainbow colored anthology. Give us your money. And then the, you know, in a couple months, maybe we'll put out another gay mini series or something that'll get canceled really quickly. You know, whereas like with manga, I've just found so much more stuff that's, like, allowed to run, like, a full story or, like, a full, like, lifetime of a series and so much more, like, variety and just what is allowed to be published that I found, like, a lot more satisfying than when I was still trying to live off of crumbs from American comic books. Yeah, I also, like, when I returned to manga, it was because I had started with american comic books just like alex like we kind of got into the same stuff at the same time and part of my big you know pivot to just reading manga is i was so frustrated by american comics for those exact reasons alex like laid out like constantly like well that's the thing is i was trying to read american comics but they would cancel all the series that I was reading because I was reading the gay shit. And I was like, <laughs> like, I'm literally trying to give you money, but you keep canceling all the series that I'm reading. So I guess I'm going to go read My Hero Academia. And then that was like the kind of gateway back into manga. Um, yeah, they're trash. Like I see like Marvel and DC with their little <laughs> rainbow logos. And to me, it's the same thing as looking at like, the bank at the pride parade like city bank at the pride parade like what are you doing for me not much not much yeah i mean it's so interesting that i think a lot of folks will say that they have found a lot more stories that they gravitate towards in manga they want to tell and explore first racing characters but it is interesting because like western comics clearly does have like a lot of queer creators and a lot of queer comics. Now, we've kind of focused in on Marvel and DC as kind of like these mainstream purveyors. But like the history of queer comics in America extends way beyond, uh, you know, what Marvel and DC offer. And there are so many incredibly popular 
titles that are unabashedly queer and they're incredibly successful, like Shackley's and Fence and Nimona mm-hmm. and Lumberjanes. Laura Dean keeps bringing up with me. Like, there's so many great, uh, recent comics and just in general, there's been a great history of, like, queer comics. And, and I've been discussing with, uh, folks like, uh, I remember when I interviewed Erica Friedman and she's an expert and a comics fan of All Stripes, you know, she mentioned, like, there's just so much out there in Western comics that explore queer stories in such a great breadth that I think oftentimes manga fans are blinded to. But what is interesting to me, that is a common kind of perception, though, is because I think it's just so much easier for a lot of us manga fans to kind of transition off of kind of the mainstream titles, like the Shonen Jump stuff into other types of manga yeah. than it is for fans of the Western superhero comic books of Marvel and DC to branch out into other types of comics beyond that. Like, it feels to me like the transition of as of being a manga fan into other, uh, exploring other different types of manga is so much easier than if you're a super comics fan and you try and pick up other types of comics that are very different. So I, I think that's just an interesting thing, uh, is that when you become a manga fan, it's just so much easier for you to get into other kinds of manga, even if it's like a completely different genre. Yeah, and I feel that like, you know, with the Western comics, um, you know, that are outside of those big two of Marvel and DC, I feel that most of what I was finding when I was looking for like queer Western comics were generally marketed towards, like, YA, like, young adult audiences. Mm-hmm. Um, like you mentioned, mm-hmm. like, kind of, like, Fence and uh, um, Check Please and Laura Dean and all that. And I feel that, like, with manga, it's so much easier to find, like, stories about adults who are queer, which is really refreshing. Not that they don't exist in Western comics, like, as well, obviously. Like, um especially from, like, publishers like uh, Fantagraphics or, um, I guess, some Image mm-hmm. Comics stuff. But, um, yeah, I just, like, with queer manga, you know, we get these stories like Lesbian Experience with Loneliness, like Ten Dance, like, you know, Dora Hidoro, uh, that feature, like, adult queer characters, which is refreshing to me because I am unfortunately and old so <laughs> I, and i i can still enjoy stories about like high schoolers or younger people but i'm like 28 now like those years are so far or at least feel so far behind me that i'm like i just can't relate anymore with with the youth <laughs> i think a lot of it comes down to like the health of the industries too uh-huh. with just like how inaccessible like american comics are in general in terms of like how specialty shop driven it is how like a lot of people don't live near a comic shop you know and like even if your town has like uh barnes and noble borders you know the sort of big chain bookstores even them like at this point the manga sections are usually like a lot bigger than the like american graphic novels and, like, if you're going to, like, a, say, Barnes & Noble, most of what they have is still going to be mostly Marvel and DC. Yeah. So, you know, you might be able to find, mm-hmm. like, a couple of, like, gay things in the stacks. But it's just, like, numerically harder if you don't, like, already know what you're looking for. You know, like, I don't even remember how I, like, stumbled upon Check Please. 
you know, but like <laughs> I was happy when I did. But also it was very much something that I was like never going to be able to find like at my LCS. Yeah. And then like everything Trevor said to about just like age and like, it's good that there's lots of YA comics and that that's booming. But also I'm an adult <laughs> and mo- like I'll read some stuff, you know, that's like aimed at people younger than me. But also I want to be able to read things where it's not like I like I don't mean this like disparagingly. But I don't want to only read things that feel like they're made for, like, baby gays just out the closet. You know what I mean? I want to get, like, more variety and, like, subject matter and concerns. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think it is, like, a really great point that oftentimes Western comics are often more stratified in the place where you can find them, separated out of their different niches. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, when you go into a bookstore or in your library, manga will just be listed alphabetically. The genres all kind of mix together, and this is kind of presented to you as like, here is the entire world of manga, of all stripes and kinds. Just go at it and explore and discover what have you. Like, you have this whole world in front of you, whereas in Western comics, you gotta look in different places, and that does make it harder. That does make it a little more of a barrier, put more of the onus on uh, readers to kind of research the kind of stories they want to read about, they want to find. But I do think that it's very interesting. And I, I, I mean, that also brings up a lot of what we're talking about into a conversation about, like, what were some of the most formative, like, queer stuff. I think, you know, we did discuss and touch upon it, but I guess since I haven't described my background class yet, I can kind of uh, go into this a little bit because... Uh, I mean, like you guys, like, it did take a while for me to have, like, an awareness that there were, especially, like, queer genres of manga out there. Like, you know, that there were Yuri and BL titles, that there were explicitly LGBT works. And even more before that, I had a, an awareness and acknowledgement of queerness, though, I did find myself drawn to queerness in media, in the media that I was doing, because even before I couldn't put into words, like, I was... Uh, gender. I did want to be gender non-conforming. I was drawn to gender non-conforming characters. It was characters that kind of expressed their uh, sexuality or expressed your qualities, masculinity, and femininity differently than it was since they were conventionally meant to. And so, like, I remember I think some of the earliest, of course, characters I would draw- be drawn to in any part of media would be like characters who would cross-dress, or who would act gender non-conforming, like, you know, Looney Tunes characters, Bugs Bunny, Daffy Duck, and stuff like that. <laughs> but of course, you know, to extend beyond that into those kind of, like, playful, bombastic depictions of queerness, I think, like, a huge turning point character for me when it came to anime manga, when I got into anime manga, was Bong Clay in One Piece. Nice. Long before, like, I understood... You know, what it meant to be gay, what it meant to be like a gender non conforming person or a gender fluid person, like Bong Clay just extremely appealed to me. Like, I, I resonated with what he represented as a gender non conforming character and like the way he presented himself. And even though obviously my introduction would be the four kids dub, which even played up what was already a very clear stereotype to an degree. Like I still fell in love with that character. 
Actually, speaking of that, I also, of course, have to acknowledge Jesse and James and Pokemon for being <laughs> a queer icon mm-hmm, since yes. childhood. Uh, definitely. Right. So, yeah, I mean, I love them, of course, because they would often, you know, cross-dress and they were, there's so many clearly uh, queer vibes from those characters. They brought it to you every ball. Right. They were so good. (laughs) I remember when James dressed in the Moltres costume, he was like, I'm a flaming Moltres. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. uh, I mean, we got that credit also localization for taking those undertones and kind of uh, exaggerating them even further. But I wouldn't have it any other way. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Right. But yeah. So... You know, I would definitely be drawn to characters like that, even more I had an understanding of what it meant to be queer, what it meant to be gay. I think because of the environment I grew up in, unfortunately, like I had a warped understanding of the possibility to even be queer. Uh, I was definitely mm-hmm. like lied to in that regard by uh, authority figures I trusted. And so when I was exposed to, you know, representation and explicitly and understood what that you know gay people do exist in this world like queer people exist in the world like it did take me back because i didn't think the possibility existed because i was uh, misled but i mean in terms of representation that uh, in media that like kind of opened my door to seeing uh an understanding like especially queer characters i mean uh for a western media uh, perspective i think American Dad was very forward to me with Greg and Terry, and then kind of the <laughs> journey of that relationship, like with from the Log Cabin Republican episode, and then like explicitly like seeing you know Stan, a straight man, like sleep with Greg, and then explore his sexuality in that way in that episode, and then you know just exploring that that relationship throughout the series, like the, seeing them like adopt a child and then raise child, like I those characters I really appreciated. But then, uh, extending back into manga, once I had more understanding of what it meant to be gay and queer, like, I definitely saw and understood those vibes and tons of characters, uh, from that point on, whatever I was watching, reading. So, like, definitely a character I type that I found myself attracted to often would be, like, kind of this sycophantic kind of, uh, queer-sorted character. So, like, Tamina and Sergeant Frog. Uh, there was a character in Angel Beats, I think Yoda was his name in that way. Like, those characters are very clearly gay, very clearly queer. And so I would definitely be attracted to that and that depiction. But in terms of understanding, like, there were stories about actual, that actually were focused on queer characters themselves. Uh, I think probably my awareness of BL and various genres probably did come from other media I was watching. I think maybe you in Oron. It was probably addressed or brought up at some point. I think Rangape might have specifically mentioned that at some point, like BL as a genre. Mm. Right. Or somewhere in more of my exploration, more of my, as I dug into more titles and learned more about the world of anime manga, that's when I formed an awareness of LGBTQ manga and different genres of LGBTQ manga. And in that research, like what, some of the earliest uh, kind of blogged sources that I read would be like Jason Thompson's House of a Thousand Manga and Shady Garrity's uh, blog. And both of them spotlighted how called from Eroka with Love from uh, Yasuko Ake. And that is a fabulous series about a 
basically it's a gay thief uh, basically uh, being tracked down by a detective <laughs> also very clearly into him and it's basically Lupin is already queer but then this just series just makes that relationship between Lupin and Zinigata more explicit and it's <laughs> wonderful it's fabulous and so learning about that series I think that was the first like BL series the first like queer manga that I ever read in my high school days and then from there like I would slowly kind of check out more and more works uh but I also speaking of those days and speaking of like series that definitely kind of resonated and helped me with my understanding of my queerness I mean you know my username online is Lamrani Asha and Rumiko Takahashi's works uh, are very messy and problematic in regards to queer representation and exploration, but Ron Mahaff was incredibly formative for me as someone who uh, resonated with this idea of gender fluidity. Like, I'm sure so many people uh, do. They see the Rama is just, like, a great uh, fantasy for gender being. And that also made me aware of, like, more works that explore that concept, which definitely appealed to me and helped kind of visualize and maybe think about, like, kind of these feelings that I always had about uh, feeling like I wanted to switch between different presentations, my gender identity, and then ultimately come to this comfort zone that I had in like being a non-binary character. Actually, Kino's journey was like a far started for that. With Kino as a non-binary protagonist, and the way that they, mm-hmm. you know, just present themselves as themselves was also a huge step for me, and like kind of understanding and. Of thinking about my own identity but yeah and then of course from there on i've just continued to explore gradually and slowly more and more different works but i i do really feel that representation of queer characters in media especially explicit representation is important because at least for me i was helpful mm-hmm. it's there were several characters helping me that like i could relate to resonate with and like it did help me understand more about myself and help me kind of understand more of my own queer identity so that's why i definitely appreciate that we are getting just more and more series that feature like explicitly queer characters that are explicitly queer stories like not just in the realm of yelling or but like characters that do like genuinely like outright i self-identify as gay as trans like in you know works like boys are in the riot which we covered on the show recently or i think it's just like though the fact that we are getting those stories is so great because i think that they are can be very impactful for especially young readers and helping them understand more about themselves but that also brings me kind of to my next set of questions like how has your guys's relationship with lgbtq manga changed over time and how often have you felt truly represented by queer characters in manga i do have to say real quick it is so iconic of you to cite american dad as a formative (laughs) queer (laughs) text um because hello, Roger the Alien, queer icon. Yeah, yeah, I didn't mention Roger, but honestly, you know, <laughs> Seth MacFarlane, say what you will about uh, all of his shows. I still yeah. love American Dad. It's still hilarious. The family guy has gotten better, actually. I, I dug in recent seasons, but there is definitely, like, 
some real bad stuff in family, especially oh, yeah. in regards to representation. Like, the say less about Quagmire's mom and how <laughs> she has been treated, the better. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, like, you know, Roger, Stewie, like, these are great gender-fluid characters that um, <laughs> goes through all different forms of presentation, and I just love them so much. They are, like, great. And, oh, I mean, that brings me to another forward series for me in the same way with gender-fluid, like, characters is Bobobo, oh. which is <laughs> hilarious, you know, hilarious end of show in series, but, like, Don Patch is a gender-fluid icon. I love them so much, <laughs> like, because they, they will transition very quick on drop of the hat between male presenting or their female presenting persona of patches and it's all genuine it's never like an act like they have like their own interior life as patches like they have their own <laughs> history as patches where they had a boyfriend in the past called yui who then shows up in the game at number six and it's just it's it's great and to say nothing of like uh so much queer subtext in that show like i'll never forget Get like it was definitely a great inkling to me. Uh, Captain Battleship's relationship with Flower Man and how they shared a healthy friendship only two adult men could enjoy. <laughs> <laughs> Literally the worst. Uh, so yeah, there's always been some great uh, representation of uh, even just implied of queer characters in a lot of the media I was seeing growing up. And you know, to the credit of a lot of creators of you know, Western media to, like, you know, a lot of stuff had been going under the radar. They like, were trying to sneak a lot of representation, even if they couldn't be explicit about it into shows. Like, uh, Arnold's teacher in Hey Arnold was yay, and we definitely got implications of that in the Thanksgiving episode. So they, there were, were early attempts, but now I'm glad we're in a point where characters can be, like, outright depicted as queer and being queer relationships in children's uh, media, yeah. which is really, really great. Yeah. I think it's really fitting that a lot of people relate to the more like ambiguous or subtextual characters that are in more that are in series that are more like heteronormative because that's often like your own situation yeah. is that you're surrounded <laughs> by straight people and you're not entirely sure of your identity or you're like closeted. So I I think it makes sense. I it it wasn't exactly formative for my own identity, but like um I, I don't know if I should say the name of the series because it's technically a spoiler, but in the first manga I ever read, two of the antagonists were like two men who were in a relationship, but then plot twist, one of them is actually a woman. And then like, not only like, does she become more feminine and like gender conforming, then they also both end up in straight relationship. <laughs> I guess that oh. might have been my first like queer bait ever. Oh, no. <laughs> so but, so disappointing. <laughs> but I'm like, well, you made them straight, but it did give me like a lifelong love for like gay villains. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and this, especially for like gay power couples and like ones with some kind of like power imbalance going on, but so there's that. <laughs> yeah. Formative in a sense. I mean, I think that's a great one because I think a lot of villains are coded as queer as a, a intent oh, yeah. to utter them, but it is backfired because instead, <laughs> queer uh, us young queer kids like resonated with those characters and were like, "Yeah, those are goals. I want to emulate that vibe, that style." So <laughs> characters like Ursula or 
uh, like uh, pretty much all like of the Disney villains are just so queer, and just, yeah. like so fabulous. <laughs> you love them yeah. for their queerness. <laughs> I mean, speaking of though, two villains uh, who were in a clear, seemingly queer relationship, or in this case, it was an actual queer relationship. Like I did think of you, Ahatsu, just and that also reminded oh me gosh. of like, oh yeah, Sensui and uh, Itsuki. Like, that was a really great uh, relationship that was formed for me. That was, like, very early on in my childhood where I discovered that. So, yeah, like, I love seeing that and the implications there that they were truly in love. But also, uh, that series also brings me to a poor example of representation uh, in the trans character that uh, is very badly treated and gets groped and misgendered and stuff. So, ah, jeez. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. It's this. It is a battle a lot of times. Like in a lot of the media that we consume, that like there can sometimes be really great uh, representation, especially if it's like kind of this under the the radar kind of implication representation. But then sometimes when they try to have more explicit characters, oftentimes they really miss the ball or dehumanize them, and like. Not just to extend to be on Yakucho, but to go back to One Piece, as much as I love Bond Clay, other queer characters, or queer quality characters in One Piece aren't as well treated. Like, the residents of the Kamabaka kingdom, like, there's this whole transphobic kind of subplot of Sanji, like, running away from them because they're these very, like, caricaturized depictions of like trans women or gay men and it's just that is a whole lot of yikes that was unfortunate and there's a lot of stuff like that where you kind of have to pick and choose your battles when it comes to a lot of uh media because you can find positive examples but then you can also find some really unfortunate negative examples and again as a Ruka Takahashi fan you know that is a battle that I constantly <laughs> fight <laughs> when I talk about her work <laughs> But I mean, again, yeah, what are your guys' thoughts on that? And again, the, like, relationship to queer manga change over time? And uh, what are your thoughts on representation and how often you've truly felt represented? I feel like mine's just gotten a lot better. Like, at the time when I was just getting more into manga a few years ago, like, coinciding with so much more stuff getting translated and being more easily available. You know, both in terms of me, like, getting a better impression of, like, specifically the boys' love industry and then also just, like, gay manga as a whole. Like, I remember one of the first series that I read when I was, like, really starting to dive in deep was number six, which, like, gave me everything that I wanted in terms of just, like, I want gay things and I want them to be in genre fiction and I want more than just, like, a romance story, but if you give me a gay romance and a sci-fi dystopia, there's very little else that I could ask from you. You know, and, like, <laughs> Shion and Rat's relationship is, like, major for me. Like, I love them, and just, like, their character arc across it. And, like, it's just really good. <laughs> and, like, I've just enjoyed how much more variety there is now which has helped like my sort of like personal sense of like looking for representation has like 
changed as I've gotten older, where it's less like, I want to, like, see the shining 100%, like, representation in this one character so much as I just want, like, a lot more variety wherein I can just see all these different aspects of, like, gayness in myself between, like, I love Given and Mafuyu, and, like, I have a lot of thoughts on him and, like, gay and a character who I, like, read as being autistic and Mm -hmm. other series that I've read where it's, like, I don't need to do, like, a whole deep dive on it because I could talk for literally forever, but I fucking love Banana Fish. (laughs) and Ash and AG and just like what they mean to me is just like a beautiful story of just men loving each other and just the industry and what like gets translated just feels so much better now than it did when I was a kid yeah and I would say that for me it's yeah it's weird because like like I said there wasn't a ton of options growing up but I think that my relationship to the queer characters I was seeing has changed because like, I didn't even um, like come out as gay until I was in high school. And then, you know, it's something like 10 years later or so is when I came out as like non-binary slash trans slash queer slash unknowable gender entity of the cosmos, whatever the hell I am, you know? Um, And so, you know, I name-dropped Haku earlier, and I think Haku is a character who, you know, when I was young, I really liked aesthetically. Like, I just thought, like, his ninjutsu was so cool, like, all the ice mirrors and, like, the, the costume, the mask. And I just really resonated with Haku and, and you know, to some extent Zabuza as well, at least like their relationship. And so it's kind of like, mm-hmm. looking back, my relationship to those characters has changed. Well, mostly Haku, because now, you know, as we are rereading Naruto for our podcast, I'm looking back at Haku and going like, oh, this is why I really loved this character. Like, not only are they cool as shit, but... Like, everything with Haku's, like, gender presentation, like, that had to literally be the first time that I had encountered a character who, you know, presented in this kind of androgynous and or feminine way while still using, like, he-him pronouns, at least in terms of, like, the translation that, you know, we all read in Naruto. And looking back, like, oh... Like, this fully planted the seeds of my transness when I was younger, without even knowing it. (laughs) Um, And so, yeah, it's kind of like, not only do we have all these options now where I can kind of find a little bit of myself in various series, like, I've never, kind of like Alex was saying, like, I don't think I'll ever see myself fully 100% on the page. But I can read, like, Go For It Nakamura and remember what it's like to have a queer high school crush that will maybe won't ever be reciprocated. Or I can read that Blue Sky feeling and see a character who is, like, like fat and queer and, like, having another character be like, yeah, I'm attracted to him. He's nice and he's 
caring and he's fat and being like, oh, wait, like, there, there's characters in media who are, like, queer and fat and people actually, like, that's one of the reasons they're attracted to them. Like, I would have lost it as a kid. I would have lost it. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of, like, where I'm at in terms of, like, looking for myself across all these various series, both from today and also reflecting on, like, characters from the past and being like, oh, that explains a lot. <laughs> Excellent. And, yeah, I mean, also to touch upon Naruto, like, I think Orochimaru, another... <laughs> kind of gender non-conforming oh, gender yeah. fluid character. I think in Boruto they've explicitly said that yeah, Rochimaru is gender fluid, non-binary. Clearly, so. clearly, <laughs> <laughs> like a full demon from hell. But we stand. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it is just great to see you know record representations of yourself even like doesn't hundred percent match experience like representations to make you feel like hey that's like me i can see myself in that character i mean carlene have you had can you want to share like some of your experiences like kind of with that with representation mm-hmm. yeah i i don't expect characters to ever like wholly represent me but i can't like deny that some have like struck a chord like i i guess the major one for me is a minor character in devil's line i i believe his name is kanzaki his um like code name is queen if i remember correctly and i mean it almost feels like obligatory because he is like an asexual character who like is in a romantic relationship with someone and there's so few of them like in media and manga that it's like well may as well be (laughs) my my similar to me but i think he really is like um especially like just stuff about how that he's specifically in like a committed established relationship for years which i also am and the fact that his partner is not asexual even with just those surface level comparisons, it actually like the actual writing I feel like was so strong and realistic and in going into like the conflicts between them in terms of that and how they like overcome their different needs. Maybe overcome isn't the right word, but um, so there is that one. Otherwise, I feel like I end up relating to characters more about other things we have in common than. Um, my sexuality, which again could just because there aren't a lot of like queer asexual characters to begin with, mm-hmm. but but when, when I find them, I do love them. So yeah, yeah, that yeah. is an underserved area of representation. Like mm-hmm. I think Minikon is asexual was a really great uh, doji. Oh yeah, that one is also good. Yeah. And that is Minikun was queer because we see that he ended up having a boyfriend uh, later on when he found someone. So that was yeah. He says he's bi. So sweet. But there definitely ought to be more representation of queer uh, asexual people. And yeah, there are definitely like I think we're definitely seeing like more explicitly gay, more explicitly lesbian, and Mm -hmm. characters. But like, there's still 
uh, some trans representations under especially for trans men, and then mm-hmm. non-binary and bisexual characters. Like, there's still like more representation. I think that could we could be seeing, or we could uh, we should be seeing. So I would like to see that. I think that is definitely like an area. As more and more creators kind of tell their own stories and tell stories about characters like them, hopefully we will see more of that, more of that will be brought over. At least that's my hope. But yeah, yeah. I mean, as far as my own kind of like relationship with like seeing myself in media, I guess nowadays I don't really necessarily look to see myself in media just so much as I look for compelling characters and stories and when it comes to queer manga I like just want to see like stories that feel like they are you know authentically depicting a queer character and their experiences and even if it's like kind of a fluffy fantasy story like Kaze-san is a pretty (laughs) fluffy story but I love it to pieces and I feel like it does touch upon some you know, very real feelings, emotions about sexuality that I appreciate. So I just want that kind of sense of authenticity, just kind of a sense of, like, a real perspective, a place where queer feelings and emotions are coming from in these queer characters. Um, But I guess, like, you know, to go back, I mentioned Oron earlier, I do feel like one of the first characters I thought, oh, this is how I feel, this is me, is probably Haruki, because the way that she would describe herself as, like, not really caring about gender representation and, like, kind of, even though Haruki ultimately does not consider herself non-binary, she gave off a lot of those vibes with her apathy towards gender conformity or gender presentations, so the way she would describe how she felt about that did really resonate with me. So I gravitated to her a lot as a character. From then on, I don't know if I've really felt I've seen a non-binary character or even non-binary character explicitly reflect how I feel. But in terms of characters who describe kind of their, you know, feelings about the frustrations with gender conformity or the frustrations with wanting to be gender fluid or wanting to present a different way from how they're seeing. I do relate with that a lot. And again, uh, to go back to Ruka Takahashi works, you know, I, I love Ryunosuke and Ruka Takahashi for that reason, that she was very much a character who was like constantly like fighting literally a patriarch in order to be seen as a woman when she was raised as a man. That's like, like, there are times where the, the main character, like, realizes how he's being, like, when she is, like, when he's her dad, like, it is your fault that I can't just be <laughs> myself. You, because of the way you raised me, like, I can't fit in in either of these binary words of, like, womanhood, womanhood, or manhood. And, like, that, that was a, when I was reading that recently, uh, when I was going through the new years out editions, like, that really hit me on you way and a lot of stories with you okay now that like hit me in a whole new way than even they did when I first read the series, you know, when I was a teen. And um I think though when it comes to like LGBTQ manga explicitly stories explicitly about LGBTQ characterizes your ADL or uh LGBTQ, like I, I do think that a lot of stories that are like autobiographical, like Nagata Kabi's work, cuts through the 
Uh, but then also, I think we're just seeing because, like, more openly queer creators, and their works are being licensed, and they're more open about exploring, like, kind of real topics, uh, real feelings that they have had as a queer person growing up and put that into their works. Like, I covered, uh, I think Our Son is Gay and Boys Are in the Riot recently on the show, and those are completely different series in terms of tone, in terms of subject matter, but both of them had that kind of sense of, like, those authentic feelings. Like, with I think Our Son is Gay, there were definitely, there was a sense of, uh, that I could so relate to with Hiroki and his depiction of, like, how he would react to kind of messages of the person he was crushing on, and how he was trying to downplay or keep under wraps, like, his affections for the boy he likes. And then also, though, more actively, like, or, like, even more so, I felt uh, that I related so much to kind of the, the pressures that he was, that was being placed on him by his dad of, like, this, this kind of normative expectations that he, he was afraid that he couldn't live up to, and that was kind of keeping him on edge of putting pressure on him. And then exploring, like, his story of like, him coming to an understanding about his own, like, sexuality, like, slowly in his childhood, and then, like, slowly getting these kind of reinforcements that the way that he expresses love and the way that he thinks of love is considered weird by people mm-hmm. around him. And, like, this is a, I think her son like day is just, like, a fluffy comedy story about mom being supportive of her son who hasn't come out yet, but, like, it, it touches on those still in that humor some of those very real experiences and emotions. And that's like this kind of stuff I, I really love seeing. And the same is true of Boys on the Ride, which is even more like just vocal and just explicit about venting, yo, these are my feelings, these are my experiences, this is what I'm putting in my word, this is my message as one trans man to the trans boys out there. Like, hey, if you felt this way, don't, you're not alone in these feelings. And then don't, don't lose hope don't hide yourself away like find something you're passionate about put yourself out there and that's that stuff i just love seeing like those messages from a queer creator true queer audiences through telling a story about a queer character it's just that's the stuff i love that i feel like i'm seeing more of now and i'm getting more of now and that's the kind of stuff that i kind of want when it comes to representation of queerness of queer characters of all stripes of the LGBT spectrum in media. I think our son is gay fucked me up. <laughs> like, yeah, I like I we were talking about whether or not we were gonna cover our son is gay on our podcast, but like I mean just tears streaming down my face the whole time I was reading it. Like I don't know if we can even cover this because it just, it hits too hard. Like, and it's just like fluffy comedy manga, but like, it's so cathartic and so like, like wish fulfilling in terms of like a relationship to a parent that it's mm-hmm. like, I can't even think about this manga without tearing up. Like, it's too much. It's so good. Yeah. yeah. Like, <laughs> as a gay man whose mom died when I was a teenager. Like, reading that and just, like, having it, like, so specifically remind me of just a period in my life and a relationship was just, like, this is causing me to have feelings more (laughs) that I'm, like, used to, (laughs) like, letting stay beneath, like, the surface of my mind. (laughs) 
This is doing a lot, mm-hmm. but God's really good. Yeah. It is just so cathartic in that way. Like, yeah, I mean, again, someone is, who has, you know, their own trouble in history with um a parent, like, who is not super supportive of the queer people, to put it mildly, like that. Tomoko being such a stalwart ally of her son and just looking out for his happiness, it's just, it moved me so much. Just so many moments of allyship in the book. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. yeah, like, I cried both times that I read it, both when I first read it and then when I read it again through <laughs> <for> the podcast. <laughs> I love the little brother character. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> He's just so chill, like, whatever, like, he's gay, let's move on. (laughs) Oh my god, the moment where he spoke up against his dad, he was saying, whoa, isn't it normal for boys to be interested in girls? And he's like, well, I'm a boy and I'm not interested in girls, does that make me weird? And that takes the data back. I just love these blunt moments he has where he just speaks Mm -hmm. up to reassure his brother that things are okay. It's just... Yeah, mm-hmm. again, just great examples of allyship in that series. So it's just so meaningful. But, you know, that does bring me to kind of another question of, like, what are some LGBTQ that you feel have just, in general, like, the best representation of queer characters, topics, and themes? Like, we've talked a lot about, you know, representations that meant a lot to us, but what do you feel are titles that, you know, you could, like, point to and say, hey, this really understands what it means to be and live as a queer person in this world. I think you know what I'm going to say. <laughs> but, um, I mean, it's got to be our dream. I mean, hello. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I mean, I am biased. It is like by my favorite mangaka ever as well. So, but um I feel like, yeah, it really gets to the heart of, like, communities between, like, LGBTQ people and just has, like, a range of identities represented that I think it lends itself to, like, covering a variety of experiences and that kind of, like, covers more ground to say. But it's it's just so beautiful. And if, if anyone still hasn't read it yet, they should. So. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, like Our Dreams of Dusk is like it manages to cover so much and touch on so many things, but it never feels mm-hmm. like it's just checking off boxes on a list. Like it gets into such nuanced yeah. and like specific experiences. Like like I think about um the I'm blanking on his name, but the char- the trans man who is like oh yeah who's like dealing with um you know this friend who is like trying to be an ally but is actually being really overbearing and just centering themselves and it's just like that is such a specific feeling and experience to have um i mean yeah that manga is perfection (laughs) 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 i think like I have kind of a weird pick for this question, though, um, because I was going to say Dora Hidoro, um, which is, Ooh. it's mm. not marketed as a queer manga, 
it's not a manga that like you know in the text really explicitly engages with queerness a lot but um mm-hmm. i think that that manga just brings up so many questions and ideas about like identity and bodies and like who am i who was i like what identity was thrust upon me when i was born what body did i have when i was born what body should i have like what do i want and like who are the people around me like who is my found family and it's just all the all these ideas of identity being so like customizable and interchangeable and um you know i kind of always think of this quote um this is from an essay on the matrix as a trans film uh by esther rosenfield Mm -hmm. uh where they write um seeing trans characters is nice but what speaks to me so much more powerfully is seeing my own experience through genre allegory that experience isn't best relayed literally because my trans feelings are so abstract and that's kind of how i felt reading dora hedoro like I like, you know, kind of like I joked about earlier, I'm like, am I non-binary? Am I queer? Am I trans? Am I a space entity? Like, I think that because, you know, I feel my own relationship to my identity is so, like, fluid or complicated that series like Dora Hidoro that's all about kind of, like, reckoning with the, like, cultural ideas and traumas that have just been thrust upon you just from being born into the world but also with these ideas of like oh i have this body like to what degree do i want to change it or keep it or do i want to become a devil or do i want to wear a turkey mask all the time but actually be a smoking hot babe (laughs) under the costume and like yeah and then you know it doesn't engage with queerness textually but there are all there are also those characters like turkey or um like choda which by the way lum um the moment i knew i could trust you was when <laughs> on your dora hedora episode everyone was saying who their favorite characters were and you said choda i was like i can trust <laughs> this person because <laughs> choda oh, thank yeah choda is my favorite too like i like we said about queer coded villains i love an evil homosexual i love an evil homosexual <laughs> and, um so yeah that's kind of my like kind of weird pick for this is i think that like dora hedoro has a lot of shit in it that queer readers can kind of like read into or engage with or kind of like consider their own experiences alongside um while also just reading a heartwarming found family story absolutely yeah i mean you can definitely find this even in stories that are not explicitly about exploring queerness you can definitely find in stories like things that resonate with you a lot, that explore, you know, what we as queer people do think about engage with, these ideas of identity, these ideas of presentation, of expression, of community. And yeah, Dora Dora is just a great encapsulation of all that. And 
yeah, like I mentioned before, uh, I have a type when it comes to kind of these single family queer characters. So, like, Chota uh, fell in love with him immediately. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) My pick has to be, I mentioned it briefly earlier, but Banana Fish, for me, is like god tier in every way. <laughs> like <laughs> I I would say hot take, but I don't think hot take. I think just maybe unpopular, but I would write like a master's thesis defending this. <laughs> like for me, this is like dead ass the best depiction of love between men or boys that I've ever read in my life. <laughs> like Ash and oh. AG I mentioned earlier, like, how it's good that, like, there's such a boom in, like, YA gay comics, but how I want to be able to, like, read things for adults and to, like, tackle certain issues that, like, those don't generally. And, like, Banana Fish does that for me, where, you know, like, content warning for anyone that's never read it, like, a central part of, like, the character's conflict is Ash's history as, like, a survivor of sexual violence. And the whole series takes place in the 1980s. So it's, you know, it is Reagan-era New York City. It is, you know, obviously, is now a good time to be gay in America? No, because there is no good time to be gay in America. <laughs> but it's so, like, furly entrenched in that specific moment, in this specific relationship between these two characters, Ash dealing with his traumas and his trouble of, like, trusting other people, and him being able to, like, find a friendship and a deep connection in AG that's unlike anything he's ever had. And, like, AG2 is, like, coming off of, you know, not an equally traumatic experience, but he's also, like, had his life upended, where, like, he was an athlete who had his whole, like, career and future trajectory, like, just upended by injury. And we just have these two figures who just meet entirely by chance, and just their relationship and their life and their, like, learning to love each other and, like, sort of, like, let the walls down. And it just, like, explores, like, the barbs and the, like, trauma and just, like, general, like, untrustworthiness, like, aspects of, like, being gay and being traumatized. But, like, moving forward with other people in ways that just hit me so hard. And, like, anytime I think about the ending, specifically the, like, afterward ending story, Garden of Light. Like, when I first read that, I couldn't even begin to think about it without crying for months. (laughs) It's just so good. Mm -hmm. And then, also, just, like, sort of piggybacking off of Doro Hidoro, and, like, finding, like, relating in the abstract... Also want to shout out at Ajin Demi Human, which is the gayest non-explicitly gay thing I've ever watched in my life. <laughs> which is also just really good. Oh, can you remind me like of some of the subtext of the content? Because it's been so long since I've read Ajin. Yeah, I can't remember character names because it's been so long. 
but just like the protagonist just has this one friend who's like always like looking after him and trying to like help him and catch up with him. And there's no way that I can read it without just thinking, wow, he's so gay. (laughs) But it is just so gay. And then just like, you know, sort of obvious, like, you know, just like the oppressed class metaphor sort of stuff of the just, you know, supernatural variety of being different, you know, all of the like X-Men and mutants and everything. But yeah, more than anything, just that gay friend cannot possibly be read as a heterosexual. <laughs> yeah, now that I think about it, Kaito, yeah, definitely uh, his feelings for K, they, they definitely probably were as strong as love. Like, they, they were loved in that guy, so, yeah, for sure. Like, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, X-Men is a good thing to bring up, as well as Ajin. Other stories in which, like, yeah, stories that are dealing with marginalized groups, like, being persecuted, and then them trying to come together in the community to kind of just persevere, and live in a world that is actively out to get them, and actively is afraid of, and is hateful of them. Like, that is something uh, very relatable to the queer experience. But especially if the story also explores you know, the close, a close loving relationship between members of that community and how they use that love to help them persevere through the hardships. And then in expanding on that, and like going back to the Amphish, like the Ash agent is just so wonderfully compelling and cathartic in that way and seeing like Ash kind of heal from his violence uh, through his relationship. Wait, AG and AG just being that kind of rock that supports it, and it's just such a wonderful relationship. And my only complaint about it is that the the story just doesn't end with them being happy together. That last unfortunate last minute trip. Have you ever read mm. the epilogue Garden of Light, or have you only got through like the series proper? I think I read epilogue chapters. Um, is Garden of Light? There's uh, there's the Angel Eyes one two or the shorter and ash flashback yeah that's really good too and then there's the oh, yeah I, I, now and then there's the epilogue like, that comes yeah. to mind and is it the context of like it's years in the future and uh age mm-hmm. is a photographer and then yeah someone visits him and then kind of observes that he's still kind of is holding on to that love for Ash. Yeah. And he has all these photos mm-hmm. of Ash. Yeah, yeah. I, I definitely remember that. Yeah. It yeah. makes me sob. It doesn't do anything <laughs> in terms of giving you the happy ending, but it makes me sob. <laughs> mm-hmm. He's never going to forget Ash. Like, he's going to carry that love with him forever. Yeah. His memories. Yeah. Yeah. I just have to say, in terms of, like, fantasy marginalization metaphors with like part humans i have never felt more validated on my like read of a manga than when devil man cry baby oh, came out yes. oh, yeah. because <laughs> i i mean i got it I, I guess you could say i'm one of the original seven <laughs> devil man fans and i was just like this is gay it has queer themes no one not a lot of people want to talk about it but then oh yuasa agrees with me so i take that homophobes so 
he he really made the subtext text, text by like <laughs> adding other queer characters and whatnot. So I felt very validated. <laughs> Absolutely. That's such a great example of mm-hmm. modernizing, updating a series that clearly had like this context that was obviously because of the time not made as explicit, but then understanding that and then just making that explicit for modern audiences and exploring that just fully. That was so well done. Has there ever been a better gay villain than Rio? Hello? (laughs) (laughs) Rio. Well, I guess Dio is a bi villain. But... Yeah, that's what makes him queer. Like he, his relationship. Share. Like, spoilers for part six, but relationship with Enrico Pucci. I mean, come on, that was, mm-hmm. that was wonderful. Another queer icon, Enrico Pucci. But yeah, yeah, Devilman Crybaby <laughs> is like, it's like a modern queer masterpiece. It's like, like one of the most iconic works to ever be produced. IMO. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> I love it. I know. I know some fans of the manga like don't care for it, but I like. I love them both equally. Same. So, yeah, <laughs> it's great to have two different interpretations versions of the same story. I think they can complement each other. Oh yeah, yeah. It's like it's like it's the two cakes like <laughs> meme for me. Yeah, I'll you eat know? both of the cakes. I'm not mad. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <sighs> I'll stuff myself silly. Like both of these are so sweet. <laughs> <laughs> you've got you've got the Devilman OVAs. You've got the manga. You've got the manga spinoffs. You've got Crybaby. So many cakes. <laughs> so yeah, I think that's in general a good trend that we're seeing a lot of series that had like you know queer subtext perhaps in the past, and now in revamps and modernizations, they just explicitly have queer characters, and this is something I think. Reserve, uh, more so in kind of these updates of kind of Western franchises like with She-Ra. Mm-hmm. And oh, I yeah. really appreciate that. I really appreciate that continuing trend. Mm-hmm. It's interesting too, because I mean, like, you can tell She-Ra, the, the reboot Princess of Power, like, also has a lot of influence from like anime and manga. Definitely. So. Oh, absolutely. It's interesting how that works out, too. I mean, I definitely think the generation of artists and animators that grew up uh, watching TV in the late 90s, like, they, you know, got into anime, and anime, obviously, as we've been discussing, has a lot of (laughs) queer characters, even if they aren't, like, explicitly identifying as such, and even when they try to obfuscate their queerness, like in Sayer Moon, and trying to rewrite (laughs) <laughs> like you can't you can't write it right you can't hide the obvious visual uh, implications that what's obviously presented as them being in love with a couple so like you see that stuff i think a lot of the artists who are now working in uh, entertainment and animation now like saw that stuff and like they are now out in queer and they want to put that representation and put their influences in their work so oh yeah you know not just Sierra, but like pretty much <laughs> Uh, almost a lot, every modern cartoon has some sort of anime influence that is made explicit in the shows, especially like, you know, stuff like Star Wars Forces of Evil, Steven Universe, very uh, mm-hmm. Craig of the Creek, 
Craig of the Creek is so good. Amphibia. I just have to say. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, well are just an abundance of great quality and great storytelling and great representation. Mm-hmm. <sighs> I guess my only other addition, I mean, I, I definitely want to concur with the examples you guys have mentioned, especially Our Dreams of Dusk, I feel is kind of just the high benchmark in terms of depicting <laughs> of different members of the queer community that just explore different, you know, aspects of the LGBT spectrum and, you know, just in very also succinctly too, just to have these incredibly fleshed out characters that you can resonate with and feel sympathetic. But, you know, beyond Arjuna does, I guess the only other kind of additional thing up that I, I do feel also ha- is a great ensemble of characters that explore different ideas and different expressions of sexuality identity is Love Me For Who I Am in Kato Gunama. And that is also mm-hmm. one of a few manga that have a non-barrier protagonist. And even though I didn't necessarily relate to Mongomo and how they express themselves, what I really appreciate in Love On The Series is that it does deal with a group of characters who, like, they all kind of present in this kind of cutesy feminine way, but their actual identities are very different among them. Like, Mogumo's line binary, there is a just straight cis male character, but there's also a trans girl. There's two trans girls because the main character's uh, sister who runs the cafe is a trans woman. And then, yeah, like, then there's also just a cross-dressing cis gay man. And yeah, so, like, there's just different uh, representations of sexuality and identity, and, but they're all showing that how, like, even though they identify as differently, like, they all still have, like, this shared interest in this fashion and this form of expression, and they, they find themselves and feel, like, valid very similarly in that expression. And it also does deal with a lot of kind of messy queer feelings, too, with, like, the girl who's in love with Mogamo and her kind of complicated feelings and, like, not wanting to admit herself as a lesbian, but then slowly becoming comfortable with that. And so I appreciate that series a lot, too, for its very depictions and for how it explores different characters. And it isn't afraid to get messy and even, like, goes into some of the hardships and some of the darker territory of, like, unsupportive families and whatnot. So that's another series that I really mm-hmm. appreciate. I know that there are some people who, especially just reading the first volume, did not, like, super jive at it, but I personally find a lot to appreciate about that and what it explains. Yeah, that's one that I hadn't gotten around to yet, but have been wanting to forever. Yeah. It's also a pretty short series. I believe it's ended in Japan now. It's only about five volumes total, so... I don't believe they're all out yet, but they've been going at a pretty good pace, and I've I really enjoyed it. Nice. I have also only read the first volume, but and I was kind of more lukewarm on it. But I will say it is truly like a series you can describe as like LGBT mm-hmm. or any other derivative like LGBTQ, just because of the variety of identities. Whereas, like, I feel like sometimes people use LGBT to like obfuscate like the actual character's true. identity <laughs> yeah. but that one but in that case it's like that it's true same with our dreams at dusk i would say are two examples where like you do see a variety of identities yeah characters explicitly self-identify as mm-hmm, exactly yeah. 
which is something that, you know, oftentimes is not the case in the Yuri series in particular, where characters, obviously these are, you know, gay or lesbian relationships being depicted on the page here, but the characters never outright self-identify as, hey, I am a lesbian or hey, I'm gay. And now that's been changing, especially with recent works, but it is it oh, was yeah. something very noticeable in, like, especially older works, too. Mm-hmm. And in still some modern works. But, yeah, like, I do appreciate that we, again, we are seeing more stories that are not only depicting a broader spectrum within a single series of different identities, of different characters on the LGBTQ spectrum, but also, you know, are having characters explicitly self-identify as identities. Yeah. But to bring up uh, that trope I mentioned of, like, characters in BL and Yuri not outright owning up to a queer identity or, like, the umbrella of, like, BL Yuri or LGBTQ kind of obfuscating the characters' precise identities. Like, that mm-hmm. does bring me to another question I want to address is that we talked a lot about, you know, representation that we, that we really appreciate, that we love, and has even felt validating, but what are some tropes and trends you've observed in BL Yuri, LGBTQ manga that, you know, we like and also we don't care for? Like, what are some things that, you know, we've noticed that, you know, we, we weren't so much a fun, a fan of? Well, as a grown woman, I do appreciate Yuri that is about grown women. Mm. I mean they're not I mean I mean I love Bloom into You I love other stuff that's like about teenage characters but the more and more that are available in English that are about like adults are like definitely appreciated by me I just um like variety is good two cakes (laughs) so (laughs) but it's it's definitely one I like relate to more in that sense but and I also prefer BL and Yuri that aren't populated by like only one gender. Mm. Um, personally, it's not inherently bad, and it is just kind of historical, especially with like Yuri and like all girls schools. Like it just, it's just the history. It's part of the genre, but I do like them. The Bloom into You author has said like that they wanted to include like male characters to show that the female characters weren't interested in girls, not just because that was their only options. Mm. And I like stuff like that, but that's, yeah, that's a very good point because like oftentimes the absence of a character of another Mm -hmm. gender is kind of used to present the story as more of like this fantasy. And there's often, you know, that, trope with class s works with these uh works set at all party throws of like oh we are kind of in kind of this kind of a queer relationship but it's just kind of like this fleeting ephemeral thing and then we're graduating and then the relationship kind of ends like it's kind of this trope of gay until graduation it's just like oh this is just like a a fantasy (laughs) fling but yeah it is i do appreciate stories that explicitly like no this is like set in the real world and in the real world mm-hmm. like there are men there are women there are non-binary people there are people of all stripes and it's yeah. you know as a queer person like in the real world you navigate that world and you, you want to read a story uh where characters also do that like the fantasies also have their time and place but i do appreciate 
you know, stories that, yeah. you know, again, they, they're more authentic to kind of the real experience of being queer and like the kind of yeah. interacting with other people in the real world. Yeah, because because lesbians interact with men, <laughs> yeah, and they may even have relationships with them. And same with gay men and women; they may like have connections to them that aren't like romantic. It's just part of life. <laughs> so I appreciate it, like to read personally. Yeah, and Trevor and Alex, are there any like tropes that? You're not a big fan of that you observed in Bale Yuri as I think the main ones for me and that like were driving forces and like me staying away from BL largely when I like first discovered it was mainly just like the prevalence of rape and sexual violence in BL mm-hmm. specifically. You know, and you know, I'm not, like, opposed to a story that, like, has that sort of content, especially if it's a story that's, like, actually going to deal with that as a plot point. But I remember just seeing so much BL where it was just a part of the characters' relationships and it would be, like, not even commented on. Like, it would be treated almost as if it was like normal for that to be how like sexual relationships between men developed in the stories and I steered clear of that and largely still prefer to steer clear of it you know like there are things that I read and that I enjoy that are problematic but part of what (laughs) I like about just how much more is getting published now is just when I was younger, it seemed like if I looked at something that was boys' love and had been translated, it was almost always going to have, like, rape scenes in it. And I really was not about, like, my options for gay comics being limited to that. Yeah. that That's rough, yeah. Like, yeah, that is a problem when a series is predicated on a relationship where one character is, like, extremely aggressive and uh there's not a bunch of consent in all some of the activity that is on there so that's not just a problem in BL but also in a lot of, a lot of shoujo romances or like that kind of relation that kind of character is kind of normalized and then even worse uh later on romanticized and so yeah I, I appreciate now that we are having like uh, you know a lot more works that just feature, you know, again, relationships kind of built on mutual consent from the start, and there's you know, a like aggressive behavior that is like, you know, pressuring or like towing the lines of consent there. Yeah, and I think um, the main trope, I mean, besides what Alex mentioned, I kind of feel the same way Alex does um, about everything they said. And I think the only main one that really jumps out to me is, <laughs> and it's kind of a silly thing, but like when you have like, at least in BL, well, and also Yuri as well, when you have the characters do the thing of like, wait, but we're both boys. And, <laughs> oh my gosh, yeah. and like, and it's not <sighs> being done in a way that's like, 
oh, here's a character, like, exploring and engaging with a new element of their identity. Like, no, it's more so when it's done because the idea of the, like, heteronormative and masculine presenting person is being, like, fetishized. Like, the whole, like, you know, for gay men, like, the whole straight acting, quote-unquote, idea, or, like, you know, turning the straight man, etc. It's, like, that kind of thing... I mean, well, half the time it just reads as, like, silly anyway, and so it kind of takes me out of it. But, um, also, yeah, I think that that trope is, like, overdone and kind of just more fetishizing than anything where, like, you know, we could have more stories that actually engage with these ideas about identity, or better yet, just, you know, have more stories that with characters that aren't even concerned with, like, masculinity or heteronormativity to the degree that they are in these, like, kind of silly scenarios. (laughs) Yeah, that trope is... It's so baffling to still see it in modern day. Like, it's it's ridiculous in any context, in any time period (laughs) such work is brought up, because it's like, it's an expression of a character being so apparently oblivious to the even the existence or the even idea of there being queer people in the world or that same-sex relationships can be possible to exist in the world. And it's mm-hmm. like, obviously, you know, I mean, from my own experience, like, it did take time for me to understand that, oh, same-sex relationships do exist in the world because of kind of what the environment I was brought up initially in, but then it's like, still, like, when you're reading characters that are kind of in their late teenage years, or especially, like, adults, it's like, it, at that point, you strain the believability, especially if it's a modern series of a character, like, being so taken aback by the suggestion that there are, like, gay people in the world, and that same-sex relationships exist in the world, and it's like, come on. That is, and then to your point, that does feel like, oh, well, then it's like fetishizing the experience of being gay or being in a same sex relationship. Like, whoa, this is still somehow we're considering a taboo thing. And so now it's like kind of an element of like, oh, we're not supposed to be doing this because we're both girls right. and boys. And that's super annoying. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was going to say, it's. Because it's really, it's really the lack of variety that's the problem. But it's changing. Yeah. So that's good. Yeah. And but it's also kind of like you're also kind of doomed because then it's like if you want to like publish things now that were older that were never like licensed in the past, it's like they're going to be outdated, <laughs> even though they're coming out now. And it's like, well, I appreciate that we can have them officially now, but it might not like be up to <laughs> modern taste so much yes yeah. yeah. things to think about but i mean yeah, yeah. i don't know well, where I yeah like when it's, when it's like an older work it's kind of like okay i see what we're doing like i, I get it <laughs> but when it's like brand new yeah. boys love that still mm-hmm. plays in the, that kind of archaic trope that's when i'm like come on mm-hmm. still <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah. Get with the times. Yeah. Yeah. That's fair. Yeah. I mean, especially, Uh, like, even beyond the context of, like, Yori and BL works, like, these are works, like, aimed at readers who, you mm -hmm. know, are seeking out, you know, stories about same-sex relationships. Oftentimes, they themselves are queer readers. Like, they they Mm -hmm. clearly know. And so you don't need to be coy with them. It's just kind of alienating. It does really feel like when you write that line, it's like you're writing Mm -hmm. it for a straight audience that is fetishizing that relationship. And that's very annoying. I see. Yeah. And, yeah, Yeah. but also, like, it's so baffling and it props up at a modern rate. It's, like, not necessarily aimed at a queer reader, but it's still, like, Come on, we're in the 2020s <laughs> here. Like, uh, Ayakashi Triangle is like a Shonen Jump series. Oh, that God. It's just predicated on uh, gender bending. And it's like, you know, the relationship between the leads in that series is constantly toys that line where the characters seemingly don't understand that, you know, it's possible to be gay. Like, the entire premise of the gender bending happening <laughs> is that the cat. The, like, Ayakashi cat is like, what? These two are being so lovey-dovey. I'm going to change this guy into a girl, so now they can't be together. Ha-ha. And it's like, <laughs> what? Do you not understand that lesbians <laughs> exist in this world? That same-sex relationship exists in this world? The people in this world? And then the characters themselves, the, hum- the human characters are like, Oh, what? But we're both girls, and so we can't do relationship. Continue our relationship or our romance. Like we have to get you back into a boy. But it's just, come on, come on, Kentaro uh-huh. You should know better. <laughs> but yeah, that's true. It crops up like in other genres and demographics too. Fun. <laughs> <laughs> or the yeah, or the the gender bending. It's like, oh no, I can't believe I'm stuck in this body. When, like, they could go on HRT if they really wanted oh, to. Yeah, that's but... another point. It's like, you know, <laughs> you, just because you you now have a, a cis female, but that doesn't mean that you are a woman. Like, you're still, like, mm-hmm. a boy, right? And if you want to, you can just go on HRT, <laughs> you know, if you want to adapt your body more to be, to be more masculine presenting. Like, you, this is not the big... Uh, <laughs> the barrier to uh, identifying and presenting yourself as a man is like this magic and the series is positioning as so mm-hmm. yeah it is just kind of baffling when you, when you see series like that that still don't have an understanding of like you know gender what gender identity <laughs> is and what sexuality you know is so yeah that reminds me of back to formative experiences when i was a kid i was into d gray man and then i read online that in the prototype version of d gray man which was a one shot called zone there's a character that resembles the main character alan walker except that there's a twist where you find out that he robin is like actually possessed by the spirit of his dead sister named julia so I wouldn't describe like an actual trans character this way, but she is literally like a girl in a boy's body. Yeah. And I was really struck by it. And but I guess that was like too much for Shonen Jump that they didn't 
do that in D. Grayman for their main character. But I was really fascinated not only by the idea of like, oh my gosh, the main character of a Shonen Jump manga could have been a girl. It was also like had a gender thing going on, but that is so interesting. Man. Yeah, but <laughs> Yeah. But then Alan is just a cisgender boy. I, I never finished D. Gray Man. He may or may not have like another spirit possessing yeah, him, but he I does. The yeah. whole thing. Yeah. But, it's, but it's the same gender. Yeah. But it's the same gender. So I mean, there is queer wives and queer subjects in D. Gray Man. You know, oh yeah. So. Definitely that's why I liked yeah. it. <laughs> but Yeah. Yeah, man, that would have been real fascinating. I mean, you know, that's a, I, I, the Shonen Jump and like mainstream kind of media, like, again, as we've mentioned before with other examples, uh, there are like positive examples of queer representation in some series, but then in those same series, even there are negative examples. Mm-hmm. But there are, oh, yeah. there are interesting kind of points along the history of these representations that's interesting. I mean, it is notable that Safe Bari Kun was published in Jump and that stars a trans girl and obviously that Mm -hmm. speaking of outdated you know stuff like that has plenty of outdated stuff but you know people still resonate and uh hold that series fondly because it was trailblazing for its time hibari is a great character and is unabashedly proud of who she is so that is a good Mm -hmm. thing and you know also to jump's credit it might have finally had its first explicitly by main protagonist in a series? Oh, yeah. Do you mean the final volume that came out today? Oh, no, that's... The... I'm not talking... I'm talking about in Weekly Shonen Jump itself. Like, mm, there's a character called... Um, in the series, I Tell C, the main protagonist, I, mm. is bisexual. Like, she's really oh. pansexual. Like, she's just in love with anybody who is, like, a criminal. But, like, explicitly, <laughs> no, she is... She does have romantic and sexual interest and so in the latest chapter uh, at the time of this recording like she did kiss like the female teeth who is like at the like the subject of uh, the arc that they were in and like they were they were flirting throughout the arc so it, it's very mutual <laughs> affection so that was pretty work cool. like, <laughs> jump finally uh, after like 50 years has like had an explicitly like by character who was allowed to like <laughs> express their love to a character of the same gender and like show that by kissing them on screen. Although cowardly, like they did like obfuscate the kiss a little bit with like kind of uh mm-hmm. like screen tone things or like it, it still is presented like romantically, but like it is kind of notable, like, huh, you know, this very clearly romantic kiss is set being censored slightly. When you in the same week in the in the magazine, you have all these shenanigans going on in Aikashi Triangle, where female characters are less gromping all over each other in sexually suggested ways. So, uh, very cool double standard sexual job. <laughs> but yes, I mean Blue Flag to mention is also mm-hmm. great. It's a great like that explicitly like there. Are, like we're two by characters in that series, the main protagonist and mm-hmm. then Masumi. So yeah, that's mm-hmm. also really great. And I love Blue yeah. Flag so much. Oh yeah. I, I am one of the people who loves Blue Flag. I know a lot of people have their issues with it, but I it is the definition of a problematic <laughs> fave for me, I guess I would say. But 
Uh, I'm really excited. I'm excited to see what people think of the final volume now that it's out. So. Yeah. I am actively looking across the room at the right stuff box that came in today <laughs> that has that volume in it that I am anticipating reading tonight. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> <sighs> I'll look forward to yeah. seeing what you think. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I I think we talked about some trends and tropes we don't care for as much. But, you know, in general, like, what kind of topics or stories do we want to see more of in LGBTQ manga? I would like to see more horror, honestly. <laughs> like, I mean, more, like, queer genre fiction in general. Like, um, there's a really good BL series called Love and Limbo, which is, like, very, like, supernatural afterlife kind of thing, where they're, like, fighting spirits or some sort of entities. And, yeah, I want more queer horror, just because I am a horror fan, and I think that, like, I think that with through horror, which I know is not everyone's cup of tea, obviously, but, you know, there's so many opportunities Mm -hmm. to, like, explore and represent like a lot of really like psychological like things that like I think when put through a queer lens just makes it all the better um which again this is my you know Dora Hidoro fanship showing but um <laughs> yeah more <laughs> horror in queer manga IMO <laughs> like Trevor said I want more genre fiction, like, you know, reading number six was part of me getting into manga a lot more to begin with. So, like, give me homosexuals in space, give me them being horrified, you know. And I'm also like, can we play around with some of the, like, romance tropes that, like, straight series get to have? Like, can I get a gay hair on manga? Like, I would enjoy seeing that. Oh my that. gosh. <laughs> yeah. <sighs> I, I, I want more, like, friendships between queer characters. Yeah. I guess. Because cause I feel, because, like, the most common appearances I feel like I've observed of, like, queer characters are they're, like, there's one in the whole cast that's, like, tokenized, yeah. essentially. Or, like, there's two, and they're always a couple, which isn't bad, obviously. But for some, like, like, uh, like Haruka and Michiru and Sailor Moon or something, which isn't bad. But I do want to see more, like, um, friendships and other relationships between queer characters, which kind of necessitates having <laughs> more characters in the cast yeah. in general. But, but yeah, that's because, especially, like, comes up in like shonen fandom a lot i feel where it's like oh they're like it's like an either or of like they're just really good friends or they're like getting in love with each other which obviously is not bad but i'm like you guys know it's not dichotomous right like they can be gay but not in love with each other (laughs) too (laughs) like yeah not the character specifically but people in general can there can be friendships between gay characters but i don't think people realize that they treat it as just a dichotomy especially since like you know i'm not going to speak for everyone in the world like not everyone has access to like queer community outside of online Mm -hmm. spaces 
But I know in my life, at least like at work, at school, etc., I gravitate towards the queers. Like these are who I'm friends with. So <laughs> it's just going to be more realistic right. to have like <laughs> the gaggle of gays in my manga. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <sighs> yep. Absolutely. I think we really ought to see more queer communities and queer friendships in mm-hmm. manga. Like it, it is something that has always struck me, and I always feel frustrated with this idea of tokenism. Like, we have this one character to represent this one group, and then if it's, mm-hmm. like, a romance story, like, we have, like, uh, these two characters who are going to be in love, but no one else around them is really queer. Or, if they are queer, they're in love with one of them, and there's a rough triangle thing going on. But there, there is no mm. sense that there is a community of queer characters that they can interact with, that they can just be friends with other gay or lesbian characters or you know like that is something like i would like to see more work put into depict and show and you know especially when it comes to like uh works that maybe aren't necessarily about queer characters i would like to see at least when queer characters are included that it's like not just the one token representation but like again there's a sense that this character has a community that they're a part of and that they interact with. And even if, like, uh, the protagonist of that series doesn't, like, interact with that character community often, we at least see it and we know that that character has a life that doesn't revolve around the main protagonist. So... Right. Yeah, like, that's something I would really appreciate seeing more of. And, yeah, I also... Yeah, actually, this reminds me of also something that I am uh, again, I really did bring up, is like when there is that one representation of a queer character that they undo it before the end of the series. Ugh. Like, uh, so like, I, one of the ones that like made me so mad was in a series called Fuka, uh, wherein there was like, one of the it was about a band, one of the characters was a gay boy, but like, Towards the end of the series, he kind of inexplicitly ends up having feelings for, like, the female manager of the band. And it's like, you know, Mm -hmm. that's not in of itself a bad thing that the character realizes that he's bi, but it's not really presented that way. It's just all Mm -hmm. of a sudden, oh, I'm not gay after all, or now I want to be in a relationship with you. And it wasn't really felt built up it just felt like hey we had this queer character and like you know pretty cool being himself and a cool representation then you just kind of took it away and don't really have any other queer characters in the work and it's like that made me really irritated and infuriated and then i know i haven't not got to this yet in the story but i know that you know one of the big misgivings some people have with Wandering Sun and mm-hmm. something that disappointed me when I heard about it is that the character that represents you know the trans mask experience in that series uh for the longest time seemed to be a trans boy by the end of the story they ultimately realize and feel that they're comfortable with being a cis girl and that is unfortunate because they were the only character exploring that experience <laughs> in that series when there are at least three characters, you know, representing the trans feminine experience of being trans women. It's like, come on. You might, <laughs> why take that away 
very much like Persona 4 doing the thing of like, look, multiple queer characters. Just kidding. (laughs) We did the whole bathhouse dungeon, but really he's just straight insecure about liking to sew. Yeah, obnoxious. It's not even like a new trope either. Like, you can read like Otomen if you want like a straight guy who likes sewing too. It's like, it's not like you're breaking any new ground. Shout out to Otomen. I love Otomen. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I feel like I've also seen a couple instances of like the idea of like cross dressing, but as a symptom of psychosis that. Or if not, like, if not as hard yeah. a word as psychosis, then even just, like, some emotional problem that, like, once they, like, work through their feelings, they're like, okay, I don't have to do that anymore. I can be a quote-unquote normal person and dress like a quote-unquote normal, you know, person, like, man or woman again. Like, there's kind of a little bit of that in Fruits Basket, a little bit of that oh, yeah. in Anohana. <laughs> Even though, mm. so my most most favorite manga is Princess Jellyfish, and I and I don't want to go so far <laughs> as to say it completely does this, but like at the very end of Princess Jellyfish, when it's like Ryunosuke like reuniting with his mother, and he's like, and then he feels he can wear a suit, and I'm just like, I guess it's like it would have been even more sickening <laughs> if you like met your mother in like the most drop-dead gorgeous ensemble in the world, like, like you've been doing this whole series, but, and, you know, I don't, I don't think that they were fully doing that kind of trope as hard as the other series I mentioned, but I'm always disappointed in that mm-hmm. sort of thing. It's like, ugh. Yeah, I, it's, it's so problematic and disappointing when queerness is associated with trauma, and when that trauma mm-hmm. has been overcome or healed from, then the character you know, disregards and sheds their queerness and now has, quote-unquote, kind of become normal again or whatever. Like, that's the implication, and that's always very annoying and frustrating. And yeah, I I also concur with Fruits Basket. Like, I love Fruits Basket, but that is an extremely kind of disappointing implication of Aikido's art. And then also, uh, the series very much never did anything with Ritsu. So that was also Mm -hmm. very... Yeah. Yeah. Fruits Basket was the one I mentioned earlier. Akito and Kurino were my first gay villain power couple (laughs) who aren't actually gay. (laughs) And then, like, not only does she live as a woman, she's like a feminine woman. They, like, make a point of it. It's strange. Yeah. (sighs) Yeah. I I mean, I just hope. That, uh, like, you know, modern words kind of shy away from that. You know, again, as we get more, mm-hmm. like, queer care, queer people telling their own stories, like, hopefully we shy away from that kind of baggage and that kind of misguided understanding of queerness and gender representation and identity. But yeah, it is kind of just a shame to have that baggage in some of the works that otherwise do explore some really great couple of things about identity or or half compelling characters like that like i really love akito as a character and her arc oh, i just yeah. it is unfortunate that there's that kind of baggage to this idea that you know 
by healing from her trauma, now she can finally live as a woman, where before, because she had to address that, she couldn't. So that's kind of yeah. unfortunate. Yeah. I feel bad. I feel like Fruits Basket, like, I always want to recommend it to people in terms of, like, because I feel like especially queer people can relate to, like, the, like, oppressive family mm-hmm. structure mm-hmm. that is so thematic in Fruits Basket, but then, like, the actual writing of uh, queerness leaves a lot to be desired so yeah yeah but that again is what makes it so good that there are more visible and available you know outright queer stories from creators in recent years Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. yeah i mean i guess that brings me to my next question of asking you guys like you know what are your thoughts on that and like the promising trend? Like, do you feel like it's promising? Do you feel like we're continuing to get more and more stories that kind of shy away from those problems that we've observed in works we've previously read? And like, beyond that, like, what currently unlicensed works do you want to see brought over? Like, you really want to read? Yeah, I think that, um, like we've been saying, there's just so many more options now. Like, there at um I was actually at Barnes and Noble today and there was even a little display that was like like Happy Pride Queer Manga and like everything that was on that little shelf, it was like Boys Run the Riot, Go for it Nakamura. Just really great options where I'm like, oh, I would actually like want to recommend every oh, um, I think our son is gay. Like I would want to recommend all of these to like you know, readers of all ages, you know, so yeah, I think the trend is definitely, as long as it keeps up in this direction, that would be great. And, um, I never really keep up with a lot of unlicensed stuff. I usually just kind of follow whatever gets licensed, but there is one series that someone mentioned in a discord I'm in. Um, it's called Gay no Osozaki Kuruzaki. It's uh, by Satoru uh, Sugajima, and it's an autobiographical manga um, where a man is recounting his experience where he did not have his, like, quote-unquote, gay awakening until after he got divorced from his marriage with a woman. Mm. And so the Mm. autobiographical manga is all about his, like, romantic and sexual exploits now that he's had this late away because i think the i think the the title translates to something like my crazy late gay awakening and so it's about like (laughs) just all the dudes that he's dating and having sex with like now that he's had this late (laughs) awakening and yeah just based on like that premise alone i'm like i want to read this it sounds so good yeah, that sounds awesome. <laughs> yeah, I I think the like the trend of licensing more LGBTQ related manga is good because I feel like it'll like clear up like misconceptions people have in like the US and other English speaking countries about like what is available in Japan. It still won't be like one to one obviously, but I feel like people will see like works that break stereotypes that they are preconceived notions that they have. So that's good. I want to see Yuki Kamatani's current manga in English. Oh yeah. <laughs> yes. It's called 
Kira Eswa Tabiji no Hate. And Kodansha could, it's from Kodansha. It's in the same magazine as Witch Hat Atelier. Nice. They are just sitting on it. They can do it anytime <laughs> and they should. Um, but it's about a girl who like wants to die and she meets like a god and an immortal man. And then they're going to jury journey to the land of the dead together. So I will admit maybe like it does have some sensitive like topics like of suicide and whatnot, but there's other manga about suicide in well, English. So. And even the opening I, of our dreams of dust kind of gets into that. So, right. yeah. you yeah. know, there's a track record yeah. for handling these ideas like with care in my opinion and, you know, doing Definitely. a good job with them. Yeah, I have fallen behind the chapters, but it's really good. And there is like it's ones I read, like um, the immortal man, like like you see him like have a relationship like with a man briefly. It seems like the idea is that since he's immortal, he like doesn't get attached mm. to people. But he's queer. The god character is definitely one of the classic like Kamatani's androgynous <laughs> characters. But, so. I want to see that and any other manga they've published in the past. Kodansha could also license Shonen Note anytime. But <laughs> that's what I want. I want more Akimi Yoshida works, like, still have nothing but mm. banana fish. I want to see Yasha come over. I want to see California Monogatari come over. I want physical editions of Yuki and Matsu mm. so that I don't have to keep having yeah. like alerts set on my eBay to import them whenever someone finally puts <laughs> Japanese ones up because yeah. I will the second I see it. And I'd like to see like license rescues for some stuff that June published like 10 mm -hmm. to 20 years ago that just isn't available anymore. Like Kazuma Kadaka's Border uh, of her series like Rin and, and The Walnut. There's just like a lot of good stuff that just is impossible to find now and like isn't even available digitally. So I'd like to see some of those. Mm, definitely. Yeah, I would concur with all of those recommendations. And as for myself, like I think I'm really interested and I would I'd like to see more kind of classic of informative kind of Yuri B. Altaio styles that were kind of you know, like early progenitors of those genres. And we've gotten some of those. Like we've gotten Claudine and Rose of Versailles, most importantly. But mm -hmm. I, I really, even though a lot of these series may not hold up as well, like I'm just interested, I'm interested in them because of their, you know, place in history and because, you know, I would just like to read them because they sound interesting. Like, I mean, this was on my mind recently because I went through, I call it like, Safe from Reality from Nagatakali, but in that series, like, she mentioned uh, the poem of the wind of the trees from Keiko mm -hmm. Takamiya, and, like, it's brought up uh, in, like, a reference, and, like, yeah, I want to check that series out. I want to check out more Takamiya's work, you know, more classic works from the, the year 24 group, and never be all Yuri. And also, uh, speaking of like early titles, like I would like to see uh, Shiroi Wahe no Fukari license. I, I read the translation mm -hmm. of that, and 
you know, obviously there is some like outdated stuff, but there's also like a lot of fun stuff, and it's uh, <laughs> on manga and like Yamagishi seems like an interesting creator, so I would like to see that get officially licensed, and then also some of her where like he is Kokoro Energy because it seems like like she explores queerness and creativity in a lot of her other works, and even if it isn't always like even if it is kind of messy, I would love to read that. And I also mentioned Hibari Kun earlier, and I would also mm-hmm. love that to be, you know, legally available, especially since, you know, a lot of classic 80s shonen jump manga that I never thought would be, you know, made available or given an official translation, like Silver Gin and uh, Saka Gake Oto Kojuko, those are like on Manga Planet now. And I say nothing of stuff mm. that like even more skirt like Toluto. And it's like, yeah, come on. If those can get an official translation, I would really appreciate having an official translation and having Hibari mm-hmm. come like legally available to read. Because, you know, I, again, that's a series that has some of its outdated parts, but also has a really great character in Hibari. And it's a lot of fun. It's a, it's a great, like, early rom-com featuring a trans lead character. And... Yeah, I mentioning Rosa Rasai and uh, Claudine earlier, you know, why I would never turn down more Ryoko Ikeda. So, mm-hmm. a lot more of that. We also need a license rescue for The Heart of Thomas. Um. <laughs> oh my, oh my gosh. gosh. Yes. I mean, Do you have $200 yeah, I, <laughs> to, so, <laughs> to buy one right I, now? <laughs> uh, we work at a used bookstore, so we were able to snag a copy because it came into our store and it was, you know, very affordably priced. Mm. Same with like Other World Barbara, the other Moto Hagio that um mm-hmm. I think it was Fantagraphics put out those big ass hardcovers. Um but yeah, Heart of Thomas yeah. needs a license rescue. And like, you know, props to Fantagraphics for like licensing some of these older hard to get works. But their shit is just too expensive. So we need someone else to license Heart of Thomas that's can make it a bit more accessible to, you know, people who don't have $50 to drop on a one hardcover volume of manga. <laughs> yeah, oh my gosh. I mean, yeah, more Moto Hagio works, the better. And I mean, we are getting some nice rescues of uh, some of her older stuff with They Were Eleven by Demba. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. As mm-hmm. well as some newer stuff from her that they're releasing. So that's good. And yeah, though. Yeah, those how to print big graphics hardcovers. Yeah, I hope those get reprints. I am very like I actually have part of Thomas like sitting right by my desk nice. right now because I got a bunch of from, <laughs> from my library, which thankfully still had them. So like, I was planning a big like big stupid yeah. to finally get around to some of the stuff that I hadn't read from her yet. But yeah, like yeah. Like, there's just some of these iconic uh, creators and some of these iconic works that I just would love to see brought over. Because even if they don't 100% hold up in terms of what we want out of, like, a modern-day representation of queer identity exploration of queer characters, like, they still were interesting and formative works. And mm-hmm. really, work where pieces are, I think that... I would love to read. I'm sure a lot of people would love to read. Yeah. But beyond the classics, obviously, I just want, as we've been discussing, there are more queer authors telling stories that, you know, are authentic to their experience through 
not just autobiographical works, but, you know, works of fiction in representing themselves the way that they've always wanted to be seen represented for mm-hmm. audiences who want to see that representation. I, I just want to see more of those manga, more of those stories continue to get licensed and brought over. And for that to happen very quickly, which I think is a very good trend, like mentioning Boys Run the Riot earlier, and it is such a special series because, uh, to my mind, like it is one of the very only maybe in available in English work, uh, that is by a trans male author starring a trans male protagonist for trans boys. Yeah. Like, you know, the, in the right. kind of, you know, after interview, like he wrote, he, he wrote this wit and intended audience of mind and thinking about like what kind of he wants to communicate to them. And that's really special, and that's really important and meaningful to me and, and to that intended audience, especially. And we need more of that kind of stuff. And I'm glad that, you know, that is a, such a recent series. It only came out in 2020, and we got it, like, less than a year and a half later. Like, I love seeing that kind of quick turnaround, and the fact that publishers are keeping an eye out for titles like that, and they are giving it, you know, the treatment they deserve. They're treating it like they are important titles, like they are special mm-hmm. titles, like Boys Run the Riot, you know, they commission completely new covers for that release from the original author. Mm-hmm. They have done all these promotional efforts. Uh, they took the effort to assemble an all-translocalization team. That's the kind of stuff that I, I really love seeing. I'd love to see more of. And yeah, actually, that brings me to, I guess, the biggest thing is that, like, I do want more stories that are about trans protagonists especially trans male protagonists we are not getting we don't have enough of those right yeah. now and as well as uh of course characters who are non-binary asexual intersex like again i want to see even more diverse representation and so you know people can point to hey there's more than one title mm-hmm. that reflects my experience and that i can enjoy and appreciate and then my only other recommendation that I can think of on that vein is that, uh, you know, I want Dorito to be licensed. I've been hearing mm. about that forever. You know, great horror manga with a trans protagonist. And yeah, I, that that's a series I think a lot of people really, really like if that got licensed. And then I guess I'll close off my list of wants and hopes in terms of recommendations for to mention something that I know is licensed, and I've known this for a year, but still they have not put out the release date, is that where is Ngoro Tagami's R Colors? Hello. I want to read that. <laughs> Anne told me about, the, about that they were they licensed, they were working on this literally a year ago, and I'm like still oh. waiting for like Pantheon to announce the release date, and I'm like, come on. I, now I know they're working <laughs> on it, and <laughs> but like, yeah, I just want to read. I want to read more than Gorotagami. Like, not just like a, I, I spit like his whole audiences, all ages stuff. Like, it's so good. But you know, I also want his wilder, crazier stuff because you know, <laughs> Gorotagami stuff gets so wild and it's so <laughs> so awesome and how over the top it can be. So yeah, yeah. any and all of his <laughs> stuff, I I want it. He's a king. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that in general, if we're going to talk on the subject of, like, erotic comics, we need more bar among your particular. <laughs> like, we got a lot of BL uh, erotic works, we got a lot of your erotic works, but, like, manga with beefy, hairy men, but a lot of muscles, like, I want 
more about Period. please. Uh-huh. Yeah. I, I was kind of confused by the naming choice of a Kuma pub that Kuma means bear, but uh, <laughs> the boys love they published. They, they, they aren't quite bears. <laughs> they, they do good work, but uh, yeah. interesting choice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, there are just so many titles that, you know, it's on my wish list. And honestly, I think that besides we've been seeing Arbor encouraging that we will we will get some of these titles in the near future. I think even if it'll take a little more time, I think that a trend in terms of accessibility of both modern queer works and older queer works is, you know, encouraging. I think we are going to get more of this stuff. But in the meantime, like we have all these wants and wish lists, but I think I want to close down the podcast by just signing off with us giving some general recommendations like if we wanted to get people into queer manga if we wanted to recommend a bl title your title or lgbt title to somebody who's interested in exploring those works like what series would we recommend to them i mean it has to be our dreams at dusk like we keep saying (laughs) (laughs) i mean that's just like it's the one like if it's if i'm only picking one and i'm talking to someone and i'm saying read this one, it has to be that one. Um, <laughs> I think if they wanted a, a second one after that, I think one that we haven't name-dropped yet is Cocoon Entwined by Yuri Kohara. Oh um, it is uh, specifically a girl's love series, but it is just so, like, beautiful. Like, the artwork is so beautiful. It has this, like, mysterious aura about it like you never quite know what's going on at the end of the day in terms of like these uniforms made of this long beautiful hair where they can kind of feel the essence of the girl whose hair made the uniform like it's just so mysterious and so beautiful um yeah i need volume three of that to get over here because it's just it's so good (laughs) I agree. I was also going to say Cocoon Entwined because I thought no one else would say it. <laughs> the, t- the taste in this room is um, very high. <laughs> Great minds think alike. Yeah. I, in terms of Yuri, I also am really enjoying How Do We Relationship. Oh, yeah. It's really good. Yeah. Like the art is just super cute and expressive and great. And like the relationship, because they start dating like, like at the very beginning, but then they have to like work out how their relationship and feelings actually work is very good for bl everyone should read manly appetites um oh. yeah it's so good <laughs> it's what's the, what's the subtitle minagishi loves otsu it's about two office workers and how one one like wants to give him food to eat and the other is like kind of put off by that it's like oh you Oh, so you're going to give me food just because I'm fat? But it's like, no, he actually likes him. And I, it sounds bad on paper, but it's I really forgot good. about that one. I've been meaning to check that out. Because um, like I mentioned with uh, Blue Sky Feeling, it's like, oh, fat queer characters? Where? 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 <laughs> right. <laughs> it's really good. <sighs> Besides all those, because like I would second all of that. A tin dance also comes to mind in terms of like, Mm -mm. you know, like 
if I knew someone was like into sports manga, I would go look over here and get just it's like <laughs> a ballroom dance manga specifically. And the sexual tension between the two leads is frankly more potent than in any actually explicit BL I've ever read. <laughs> and it's just really good. But yeah, definitely like uh, Cocoon Entwined, um, Our Dreams at Dusk. I'd also shout out again that Blue Sky feeling in terms of series that aren't just skinny twinks. Yeah. <laughs> in terms of genre fiction, I recommend Heaven's yes. Design Team. <laughs> it's so good. <sighs> like, it is interesting. I've I've read people online say that the official translation calls Venus she, but in the print version I have, it calls Venus they, huh. which is strange. Because I'm pretty sure she's a trans woman, but it's something. But it's still good. I love her. And I also just find it very interesting that it's like a manga literally about biology, but it has like a positive representation of a queer character. And that they're all like divine angels, but still like, which are like somewhat traditionally thought of as like genderless, but they still have their own gender. And that includes being trans. And I just find it very interesting. On top of the fact that you get to learn fun animal facts. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'd concur with all your guys' recommendations. There's not a whole lot, like, I can add. Like, you guys covered a lot of <laughs> ground there. As far as I the mean... queering the guillotine agenda, if you were reading Naruto, <laughs> you were reading a queer manga this whole time. <laughs> <laughs> There you go. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I guess my recommendations, I guess, you know, are pretty, are pretty, I guess, I think there's stuff we brought up before in this podcast, but with Yuri, like, I really like Blue and Kiyu and Kazusan. I think those are very accessible, mm -hmm. you know, titles to give to newbies to Yuri, and they're very enjoyable. With BL, I really like Go for it, Nakamura. And then for a uh, manga like that has more adult protagonists, I really liked Our Dining Table. It was just such a sweet story, mm -hmm. kind of about like taking care of this child and then these two characters kind of bonding over, you know, making meals for each other. And I really love that one. For manga with trans protagonists, that can be a little trickier, but I mean, Boys Run the Riot is just so good. Loving it for mm -hmm. who I am, I really love a lot. Wondering so, it even though it drops the ball with one of its characters, it does have a lot of really resonant things. So there is still a lot of good stuff out there. And of course, there's autobiographical stuff like The Bride Was a Boy. That's really great, too. But mm -hmm. yeah, and when it comes to like all-encompassing works, uh, it really is hard to beat our dreams at yeah. best in terms of <laughs> representation. And it's short. Yeah. It's, like, it's short yeah. and sweet, too. So I feel like it is a good first, like, first manga in that sense, too. But... Yeah, Our Dreams at Dusk, like, is something that I can give to a middle schooler, I can give to a senior citizen. Mm -hmm. Like, everyone, everyone <laughs> should read it. Like, it's just, yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. And both those yes. age groups are in yes. it. Oh my gosh, <laughs> yes. I mean, that's just such an important point yeah. that I loved about Our Dreams at Dusk, is that it's about 
an intergenerational community. Yeah. Thanks. Mm-hmm. Queer characters and relationships in different phases of their life, like teenagers, adults, and, you know, an elderly couple. It's just, again, it's hard to beat that because there isn't a lot of letter manga that explores a queer community that fully and shows queer characters in those different stages, like a multitude of them. Like, I just, again, it's such an amazing work. But yeah, I hope that in listening to this podcast, like our listeners, if they hadn't heard of a title here that would be a really interesting to them in their journey into the world of Judo manga, that they can take our recommendations and they can go explore on their own because there is like a lot of great stuff out there. And there continues to be a lot of great stuff coming in. I am excited to continue with this show and continue to spotlight and highlight them and read even more great stuff. And I want to thank you guys again for joining me today to kind of discuss and gush and share our feelings on, you know, the world of Jiku manga and what they mean to us. Yeah, thank you so much. It's been such a good conversation. Like, it's been really fun. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thank you. And I definitely would love to have you guys on again for more conversations about these series you love in the future. Yes, please. Yeah. Sure. But until the next time we can meet up together again and discuss the wonderful world of manga, uh, be them queer or not, or every manga is queer when you look at, look at it. <laughs> but until the next time we can we talk together again, I am, where can people find your work to find more of your thoughts on media and on especially queer representation media like Carling, would you like to share where people can find you on social media and your blog? Yeah, sure. Um, my Twitter is flamwenko underscore girl, F-L-A-M-W-E-N-C-O underscore girl. It's a samurai flamenco <laughs> reference, which is which is not a manga, but is uh, very queer. Absolutely. So, <laughs> yeah, I'm not I'm not super active anymore um, since I. Now manga is almost kind of my job, so I'm figuring out that work-life <laughs> balance. But I, I got to I get to vote in the Eisner oh, this that's year. Cool. That's, nice. that's exciting. Yeah, but that's where I tweet sometimes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I really love your post. Like even if uh, they're becoming a little less regular, like I really enjoyed your um, last post going over kind of uh, the history of Yu-Gi-Oh parodies in my generation. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I, I may or may not cave and write something about like queer readings of Yu-Gi-Oh oh sooner gosh. than later. So. Absolutely. I know so many people would love, I would love to read that. Oh my gosh. There's so much queerness yeah. in Yu-Gi-Oh. I, I've been getting back into it in a big way. So. I'm literally wearing a Harpy Lady Sisters t-shirt right now. Oh my god! <laughs> nice. Oh my gosh! Yes. Yeah. I love harpies. <laughs> <sighs> yeah, yeah. My blog again is a uh, coherentcats.com. That's where my like essayist essay type posts are. Yeah, that's all. Awesome. And Trevor and Alex, where can people find you guys on Twitter and your podcast for Guilty and Trevor, your uh, work writing on a bunch of sites? Uh, yeah, the best place to find uh, my writing is probably just to follow me on Twitter. I'm on at Brasuv. That's B R I 
S-U-U-V-E, because I'll always be tweeting about, you know, whatever I've published. I haven't gotten anything out in a minute because of life things, but, uh, you know, the link to my portfolio is on my Twitter. Um, that's the best place to keep up with my writing. And uh, for Queering the Guillotine, you can follow at Queer Guillotine on Twitter, or just search Queering the Guillotine in whatever podcast app you use. You'll probably find us. I'm on Twitter at Zorak Richardson. Zorak as in Space Ghost's Mantis Foe. <laughs> um, I've had articles various places. I've been published on Anime Feminist. I'm working on a piece for ComicsXF right now. But the main place you can find my writing is going to be AIPT Comics, where I write about a little bit of everything, but especially manga and gay shit. And yeah, also on the podcast, Queering the Guillotine. We have fun shit coming up. Yeah, yeah. look forward to it. <laughs> yeah, and I guess most relevant to this podcast, for AIPT Comics, I did write a piece about Go For It Nakamura um, a couple years ago. So if you want to read any of my writing relevant to what we've discussed today, I guess Google like Trevor Richardson, go for it Nakamura, or maybe Google um, queering the octopus, I think is what I, something like that. I, it, it was been, it's been a minute. I don't remember <laughs> what the actual title was, but it's one of my favorite things I've ever written. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yes, definitely check out. Uh, Trevor and Alex's work and Carlene's work. There'll be links in the show notes. And again, yeah, thank you guys for coming on and yeah, sharing your projecting experiences with us. And I think we had a, a gay old time as it were. <laughs> <laughs> until the next time, I think we'll be off on our merry way. Thanks again to Trevor, Alex, and Carlene for joining me for a great discussion on queer manga. As mentioned, definitely check out Trevor and Alex's podcast, Queering the Guillotine, where they spotlight queer manga as well as examine other popular media from a queer and critical leftist perspective. 
They have great conversations and smart thoughts on a ton of great series, with some recent episodes spotlighting such seasonally appropriate queer horror classics like Monster Fucking Manga, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Devil Man Cryberry, and Evangelion, to name just a few of the great podcasts topics they've done this year and i really enjoyed listening to their show and highly recommend it if you a queer listener among the proletariat suffering under heteronormativity much like themselves want unabashedly queer conversations about media of all stripes and once again i also highly recommend carlene's black ahead and cats where she and her blog partly molly have written a lot of great posts spotlighting queer manga as well as deeply exploring various other media while they're currently on a writing hiatus i wanted to spotlight carlene's most recent piece an overview of Yu-Gi-Oh! periods and western cartoons over the years which is a really fun piece exploring different ways american series have understood and paid tribute to Yu-Gi-Oh! over the years in so many different forms. And I know Carlene has also been working on a Yu-Gi-Oh! GX piece, so look forward to that being published soon as well. And I'm also happy to announce that Carlene will be returning as a guest on our upcoming episode on Samatitska's Dororo manga, which she was a big fan of and we had a great conversation about, so look forward to listening to that very soon. But that brings us to our community shoutouts for this episode. And there are so many great podcasts, videos, articles about queer manga media that have been made and are still being made. And I couldn't possibly mention them all on this episode. I have to narrow down my list a lot. But I'm going to try to get through and shout out as much different resources as possible, as much different great pieces as possible and i'm going to start off with some podcasts focused around queer manga media several which i mentioned before but starting off gayest episode ever one of my favorite podcasts out there and the host drew and glenn do deep dives on the most queer and gay episodes of tv shows primarily sitcoms discussing both intentional and unintentional queer narratives and readings of stories tropes and characters and often digging up underrated and overlooked shows that have done notable and interesting episodes exploring queer topics and themes. Drew and Glenn are both gay and professional TV writers and it's really great to listen to dissect these stories and themes from their perspective. And their insights are just so informative and it's a really great listen if you're interested in the history of queer representation on TV and television history in general. And they're going to be doing a mini-series on their Patreon exploring the cartoons that made us gay, highlighting 10 particularly formative cartoons for queer folks growing up in the 80s and 90s. And Sailor Moon will, of course, have an episode dedicated to it, which I'm really excited for. So definitely hit up their Patreon if you want to check out that mini-series in that episode when it launches later this fall. And with any luck, they'll cover other anime on their show in the near future as well. But for podcasts dedicated to specific genres of queer manga, check out Tomo Chaco and the Yuri cast for great discussions of Yuri manga. We recommended and had the hosts of both of these shows on manga before, so I won't repeat my praises too much here, but suffice to say both shows do a great job highlighting a variety of different Yuri titles, old and new, with fun casual banter and great perspectives from the hosts, and they're both highly recommended. And for BL Manga coverage, I want to recommend the Yaoi Shelf Fujoshi Trash Talk. Both shows have fun and fiercely queer banter on the body world of BL, and the Yaoi Shelf's hosts Amanda Carolla provide great perspectives, being authors, 
in the BL and queer space and Fujo trashes trio Stacey, Jen and Tara provide really good perspectives on kind of BL fans who are rooted and knowledgeable with the Japanese Hidoshi community as well as the English side of the community and while both shows release schedules can be a little inconsistent they're both well worth following for boisterous BL banter if you're looking for good entry points into the world of BL and Yuri and LGBTQ manga, I want some good overviews of the history of queer manga and different genres and a list of recommended works to check out. I recommend taking a look at the New York Public Library and MSN's pieces that do great overviews of the history of queer manga and LGBTQ manga. And they got you covered in terms of recommendations lists. They both have really great pieces out there. And for other recommendations lists, our friend CBG also did a great video of some recent LGBTQ titles that have come out earlier this year that I highly recommend and encourage you to check out if you're interested in some of the best of the best in terms of recent queer stuff. And I also espouse checking out the channels at Dynamic Dylan and Fujo Ferry for more BL coverage and recommendations. I enjoy Border enthusiasm for dbl and they've made great recommendation videos for bl titles for newbies as well and for more of an analytical overview of bl and gay manga as a genre the artist and geek has done a great video uh, delineating between bl and gay komi as genres evaluating where the identity of the authors affects the content or validity or representation in the stories and challenging comments and criticisms dismissing genres where concerns of problematic content which while not excusing that content itself also exploring where those criticisms may came from a place of bad fate and they've done very thoughtful well researched videos that you should really check out to understand the nuances and differences between different types of manga featuring male-male relationships. And if you want a deep dive into gender-bending manga in particular and the ideology behind them, there's a really great medium piece by a trans writer named Sylvia that explores gender-bending manga from a standpoint of gender theory as outlined by authors like Judith Butler, examining how these stories explore insecure masculinity the subjugation of the gender-bent body in a mirror moment, and the emphasis of learning gender performativity to pass as that gender, gaining access to gendered spaces, deconstructing heteronormative assumptions of gender biology, and conflict in self-identification. It's a really interesting overview of the tropes, nuances, and complexities in the very premise of gender-bending series, and how these stories can navigate these questions, topics subversively, or otherwise confine themselves within the cis framework. And for an examination of how the landscape of queer manga has changed over the years, Ren of the blog Bring the Tea wrote a great piece focusing on how queer media representation has come just within the 2010s as a decade, highlighting the shift in focus to community narratives, focusing on groups of queer characters, stronger commitment to queer futures for characters in relationships, a shift in emphasis from teen protagonists to adults, more as well as the same-sex kisses on TV anime, more archival works from out-queer authors, and the proliferation of more stories that queer gender norms. It's a great overview of how the landscape of queer anime and manga have changed in just the last few years and what these trends may lead to in the future. And you can find a similar overview of how the Yuri genre specifically has evolved over the years in one of Erica Freeman's friend who shows Yuri Studios videos 
which looks at changing trends in the subjects and tropes found in your stories and where the genre is going, where it's evolving. And I highly recommend Erica's Yuri Studios videos for overviews and key questions about Yuri topics and history, including why boys love, grows the genre fascinating Yuri, why there are a lot of vampire Yuri stories, why a lot of Yuri stories are centered around romances as the defining point of the stories. The key gateway Yuri anime that have defined and influenced the development of the genre over the decades and have spurred the growth of the fandom. She covers a lot of Yuri history as well in her recent 100 Years of Yuri panel for Anime Locked On, providing a great overview of how Yuri got started, developed, and evolved in the genre over the decades. Erica has also written extensively about Yuri on her website, Akazu, which is coming up on its 20th anniversary. And earlier this year, she wrote a great piece on Akazu, focusing on when and why queer representation hits or misses the mark in terms of resonance and being satisfying, exploring that early on representation was scarce, queer readers would go about to anything remotely queer coded as satisfying representation. But over the years, since we've been seeing more and more representation, mediocre rap isn't as up to snuff, and nowadays with more queer authors, out queer authors, writing own voices stories, and more accurate characters stories written from authentic perspectives. Any media that is trying to represent the queer identity closely but falls short or does so inauthentically just comes across as shallow, and we're no longer satisfied with media telling us what our story is, because we're telling our own stories, and what we're looking for now in media really is media that models a world in which we want to be seen, respected, understood, treated well, and it's just a fantastically written topologue that well explores how the weird question of what is good representation of queer identity, queer individuals in media is ever-evolving, and that's a good thing. And Erica is the premier Yuri scholar and historian. She's literally written the book on it. We've had her on several times to talk about Yuri, and you absolutely have to check Outer channel and our website because for extensive and comprehensive Yuri coverage. For more videos and articles exploring how queer media and stories can affect queer readers personally, Dynamic Dylan mentioning him again did a great video about his relationship to romance stories as a male reader and his journey to stifling his shame and enjoying what he does and embracing what he loves that makes him feel happy and validated, which is a great video about challenging assumptions about fitting into heteronormative boxes about what's okay to enjoy and embracing what you do enjoy. And on a similar note, Alex Klein's piece on how Banana Fish navigates queer male intimacy is like a similar great piece analyzing their relationship and why it's so compelling as a love story while never having the character self-identify explicitly as being gay or in a particular way, let's say. The story is still able to powerfully depict this couple fighting for their love with the vocabulary they're allowed to express, they're allowed to grasp, fighting against the world that it tries to destroy and keep them apart. And the piece is a really great tribute to Banana Fish and why the AGF relationship is a really powerful example, a really personal example of male romantic intimacy, which I wholeheartedly agree with. And on the subject of like similar great and really cool pieces about the power of queer narratives in media, how they can affect us, and any fundamentalist, you know, I led them many times before. They published so many great perspective pieces from queer writers, but I want to particularly spotlight Cynthia Millsap's piece about, you know, she is a recently out queer writer in her 30s, and 
She was able to understand and embrace her queer identity through consuming BL and Yuri, which helped her break free of the purity culture and shame and guilt instilled in her by her conservative environment, helped her challenge ideas of what women's sexuality could be and be explored, and provided a safe space for her to explore her desires and fantasies and see herself in media and be comfortable with her sexuality being fluid and feel okay to admit her attraction to women after having relationships with men for so many years. And Cynthia's story is just a very compelling, very moving read showing the power of queer media to help burgeoning or closeted queer readers come out and embrace their queer truths. And I wish Cynthia a lifetime of happiness as she embarks on her own Yuri journey. And NFM also published a really great piece earlier this year from Kay Scheindler comparing and contrasting Blue Flag for Serving with Dusk, a stories exploring LGBTQ characters from different perspectives from the author's point of view for different audiences. And while I feel their characterization of Blue Flag as a superficial conversation starter is unfair, I do think the piece brings a valuable perspectives and points about our dreams at dusk and its value in exploring the importance of community for LGBTQ individuals and how it represents a spectrum of different identities at different points of their lives with conflicts related to their aging experiences where I also see the point that Blue Flags are not tends to be as explicit in having its LGBTQ characters outright self-identify and have more of an emphasis on the romantic relationships, relationships to supposed, you know, straight characters, you know, how that gears itself towards more cis folks. And it's more about them examining their privileges and wanting to be better allies, not as much illustrating the full spectrum of, like, LGBTQ issues in a comprehensive, nuanced way in the same way as our dreams at dusk. So I do agree with the piece's ultimate takeaway that it's important to uplift and promote writers who can speak attentively about their own communities and depict them realistically from an informed perspective. But I would also recommend Ray Whimsical Pictures' rebuttal tread to the article, which highlights some more nuances and complexities to the relationships and identities of the characters in Blue Flag that the article gives it credit for, and shows that the series does navigate those questions and spaces in its own way, if not as in-depth as Our Dreams at Dusk, but still very well. And on the subject of Our Dreams at Dusk, there's been a lot said and written about how brilliantly and all-encompassingly explores the spectrum of LGBTQ experiences narratively. But what I love about Lines in Motion's recent video on the series is how they examine how Kamatani's art communicates powerful, visceral emotions so integral and poignantly reflective of those experiences, depicting exploring feelings and sensations through art and metaphor in a way that feels more powerful and affecting than words alone could express. And not only is our video a brilliant dissection of the power of art to reflect experiences and communicate emotions, but it is a gorgeously edited piece in its own right, with some of the best editing and animation of manga pages I've ever seen, breeding new life in the commentaries already with Asia's art. And honestly, the video itself is a piece of art in its own right with how beautifully edited it is. And it's absolutely one of the best manga video essays I've ever watched. And one of the best tributes to our team does that's out there, and I can't recommend it enough. On the subject of video essays, though, that brings us to my last shoutouts for this episode, which are two recent video essays that examine queer representation deep the two series that, while not explicitly 
queer are nonetheless formative and influential series for many burgeoning queer anime fans. And first up is Bonsai Pod's recent retrospective on Rama Half, going over many aspects in which the series was ahead of the time as a martial arts parody, and more pertinently, how the series challenges explores masculinity and sexuality through Rama's gender bending and communicates a message of acceptance of treating people well, regardless of how they identify. And while there are a lot of nuances to how Rama depicts and explores these scenes, and might be, might be totally positive. Bonsai Pop does make a great case for Rama's many progressive qualities and values of work that challenges traditional ideas of gender and sexuality in a way that resonates with many viewers and can make them contemplate their own identities and biases in a healthy, productive way. And finally, I'll close out my show notes for this by highlighting Neurology's Car Capital Soccer retrospective, which examines how bold and progressive that series was as a children's show that featured a bisexual love triangle and featured many prominent queer characters in the main cast and portrayed their relationships with one another as truly romantic and normalized, and how the series was really formative for its bisexual representation and for Neurality's as a young bisexual growing up. And while the series has a lot to praise and how it depicts and explores queer characters. Neurality is also laments that Club's love is love message is too universally applied to other situations, other forms of romantic relationships, most specifically and egregiously the age gap relationships in the series between adults and minors, which undermines how well their queer rep can be appreciated because in this lens, queer relationships are equated on the same level as these adult-child relationships with non-traditional loves, which is a reprehensible message to send when queer communities, queer relationships have been stigmatized and equated as being the same in degeneracy to, you know, pedophilia, and that queer relationships in the series are censored as much as those student-teacher relationships and localized versions of the series, as if they are just as bad, and that's just a sour taste. That's just a real sour note, and it's, it's a good piece. It's a good video that touches upon the difficulties in navigating reconciling forward in media for us as queer youth that, you know, growing up and looking back have problematic baggage associated with them when visiting them as adults, and ultimately expressing that it's okay for these formative media to have a place in our hearts, as much as it's okay to leave them behind. It's following how much better peer representation is in media nowadays, especially media for kids, which can be recommended and celebrated without caveats, and how the future of queer representation in media is looking older, brighter, for these modern examples. And that's the representation I want to leave you guys with. It's been a long road for queer genres and representation in media to be refined, to grow and develop over time, but we're starting to get to a place where we can have proudly and profoundly authentic works like Our Dreams at Dusk, I Think Our Son is Gay, Boys Run the Right, and so many others that depict these more queer characters from an antithetic place and a place of lived experiences. And we're seeing more and more queer representation in media for younger readers and viewers in particular, helping young queer audiences see and understand themselves through the media they engage with and normalizing queer characters for non-queer viewers as well. 
And when it comes to queer manga, we're getting more and more titles every year from queer authors, encompassing a lot of different genres and experiences, and that variety is truly the spice of life, and we love to see it. And I, for one, am looking forward to more boldly queer voices and words being uplifted, proliferated, and celebrated in this space. I am excited to share and talk about them with you on the show in the years ahead. But... Until our next Gale time, it is time to sign off and let you guys know where to find us when we do our next Rainbow Review. And so, if you want to find me in particular to check queer manga, give me recommendations, you can reach out to me at Lamaromayash on Twitter. I'm on many places elsewhere by the name, like Animation Revelation, Annie List, wherever it is in Lamaromayash, that's you can find me. You can also read my reviews on honorscomment.com. We got a lot of books coming in, a lot of reviews coming out, so look for more on there. If you like the thumbnails I draw for the podcast, or the art I make in general, you can check out my art on my Instagram, AppsetArtWorks. You can also listen to the podcasts I do related to this show or separate from the show, including manga, maps, and movies. The show where we don't talk tank about movies, so much as we celebrate them in certain occasions. We do talk trash and we do bash. And Lum Squad, where me and Andrew AC Yoshimura discussed a wonderful and wacky world of Mugurakashi's Yurusei Atsura. We're having a lot of fun reviewing the manga volume by volume, and we look forward to attacking more of the movies. As well now that they're on Crunchyroll. And you can find Lum Squad on Twitter at Lum underscore Squad. And on every podcast platform you can think of. We're basically everywhere you can find the show. Basically, like we're also on YouTube. We have a YouTube channel where we upload episodes. You can find us on there as well. And on that subject, you can find the Manga Mavericks on Twitter at Manga underscore Mavericks. On Tumblr, Manga Mavericks at Him.com. YouTube at YouTube.com. There's a search for us in channel below and you'll find it. We're on practically every podcast platform you can think of. Apple Podcasts, etc. and the like. We'd be grateful if you could rate and review us to help us reach more hearts and minds. You can also send us feedback at our email, Manga We'd love to hear your thoughts on the world of LVQ manga, your relationship with them, as well as your most favorite informative examples and titles, and those you'd like to recommend to us and other listeners who want to dive deeper into the queer manga well. And if you want to support the show, help us continue to produce podcasts reliably, you can become a patron of ours on our Patreon, where we have a variety of tier options available for you to choose, with a wide range of incentives, including early access to select podcasts ahead of their public release at our $2 tier, a monthly podcast exclusive to our pages at our $5 tier. Right now, you can listen to episodes of Lum Squad and Colton's Another Day, Another Adventure, Dragon Ball Podcast a few months early before the public release. And our currently running monthly bonus pod series is a manga arts book club where Cold and Doctor are going through the original Saint Seiya manga volume by volume. They're nearing the end of the series, so you'll want to hear their thoughts on their journey for sure. And we definitely have a lot of exciting podcast plans coming up. Definitely a lot more queer mind discussions in our future as well. And so it's on that that that's going to leave us off on this overlong, long review podcast. We've made it over the rainbow, and this has been another very queer, very gay, very happy episode of the Mong Arts Podcast. And remember, be gay all day, always. Sayonara!